The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How are you feeling? I'm doing great. Great. I got all three children under my roof at one point. Hey, that's <laughs> nice. At a time. It's it's nice. It's nice. I might actually sleep today. Yes. Fingers crossed. For those who have not necessarily been listening to our episodes in order. Christy's oldest has gone away to university. Correct. Yeah. So and home. Jo- I mean, bless the parents that their kid goes away for like six months and then maybe comes home at Christmas, maybe doesn't. Uh, he'd only been gone the two weeks, but it was a very large adjustment for everybody. Of course. It's a huge adjustment. To the point where last night he did hang out voluntarily with his younger brothers. So. And that's a beautiful thing. I don't hate it. I love to see that for you. Um, Equally, uh, you were saying, you know, you you can finally sleep, your house, all these things. I'm feeling similar feelings because what have I done? I've stocked up on my Mike's hard peach fuzz. Here's the problem is that uh, I drank one of these last week on the podcast and it was so delicious. I've been averaging like one a day. I'm drinking them not for the alcohol like i'm i'm drinking it almost as like a ooh that'll be a nice treat of a flavor and it's like yeah but there's you yeah. know what i mean like maybe this isn't a sustainable model you know you can't sure i'm not just popping a peach juice i'm popping an alcoholic <laughs> peach fi- peach fuzz peach oh, fizz I, whatever i bet there's better peach flavor in that than in the peach juice that i've been choking down <laughs> 20 jugs now <laughs> Listen, Look, I still have the note uh, written down to get Mike's peach, uh, and I'm 
headed out tomorrow, so I'll probably uh, see if I can. You gotta try this. Again, listen, we're not getting paid by the Mike's Hard people. For the love of God, we'd love to be. Don't even need to get paid. Free product would be nice. Um, Because I'm drinking at an alarming pace. Uh, One a day isn't that bad, but still, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. I'll be honest, I'm hooked. Oh, I like that. I'm also just going to be straight up that my diet uh, here, um, I'm in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, uh, beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, my diet yeah. hasn't been I, what I would call sustainable. Oh, okay. I've been having, like, my diet is what you would describe as, like, 12-year-old boy with a credit card. Like, it's not good. I had a half a bag of Doritos for lunch and 10, yeah. 10 super nibs. That's not, it's not, I, it's not first good. Of all, couldn't be happier uh, that you counted them. Yep. Uh, second of all, nothing makes me happier than like good road trip food. Yes. And I like that that's the life that you're living. I Im- like that that's the diet you're going for. This week, I decided, you know what? Um, I never know what I want for lunch and then it takes forever and then sometimes I just don't have anything. Uh, so I like pre-prepped some veggies. So I've been doing veggies in uh, ranch all week with a little bit of chicken on the side because I felt like I should have a protein. What I love is is that this is what always happens. The universe yes. has to have us kind of like we have to balance each other in whatever way. We do. And to be clear, I don't normally eat Doritos as a meal, but we don't have zesty cheese in the States. And zesty cheese Doritos are a beautiful oh. thing. Um. Yeah, I think maybe I've got one more day of this kind of slovenly lifestyle, and then I got to really make some changes. Straight Why up period. Why don't they have zesty in the States? The, the differences between what Canada and America have will never cease to blow my mind. Like, there's things sure. that we have that I'm like, they would love this down there. Why isn't there the Coffee Crisp bar top of list? Sure. Top of list. A chocolate bar that's lightly flavored like coffee? Get out of town. It's delicious. I feel like that's right up the alley of Americans. And don't poo-poo it. If you're an American and you're going, ooh, sounds gross, don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it because it's delicious. It's it's our national treat. It's our national treat. It's a national treasure. Don't yuck someone else's yum. That is the the new phrase. I hadn't heard that before this year. And uh, I think it's so perfect. So perfect. Yes. Yeah. You don't have to love everything. You don't. But if someone else really loves it and you don't, it's just as easy to go, that's nice for you. Yeah. Zippa la lipa. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That's like one of one of my favorite combinations of all time is ketchup chips and chocolate milk. It is to me. The perfect combination of something extremely sour, salty, tangy, whatever you want to call it, and then something yeah. very sweet. Preferably one of those caramel milk chocolates. Do you remember those? Caramel bars also yeah. is a Canadian chocolate bar. They have a chocolate milk that's that's flavored like that. My mouth is watering. That combination. Now that is how I managed to bulk up uh, in high school. I had a my first high school boyfriend and I got into a real habit of like, and of course he had the constitution of a a teenage boy where he could burn it all off, and I maybe of didn't course. as much. But um, worth every worth every shot with chocolate milk, worth every drop, delicious. 
I was going to say, based on the sound of the combination, that it might have been a high school thing. Mm-hmm. Because that does sound the correct age level. Um, yeah. Look, I don't think I have... I don't think that there is a combination of things that I eat together that people would go like, oh, God. Oh, I have so many. (laughs) (laughs) So many. Gross, like gross tendencies. Oh, I have things that I eat that my family are like, ew. Like that macaroni salad that I made so much of it when they were all out of town that I made myself sick of it. Yeah. In, In a matter of days. Um, but yeah, I mean, God, yeah, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that's like a weird sauce. When I was a child, I used to do cheese whiz and raspberry jam sandwiches. I want to kiss you on the mouth. I want (laughs) to kiss you on the damn mouth. You've never told me this. That sounds delicious. The raspberry jam was homemade. Oh. So seedless <laughs> <laughs> thank but you very like, much just a little bit sweeter than the average uh jam but you had to get the amounts right for it to be like the salty with the sweet and yeah that was a random one that would go to school back when obviously peanut butter and jam were allowed as a PB&J at school, which you can right. do now. But this, this alleviates the problem of the peanuts because you got cheese whiz in there. Yeah. Here's what I'm yeah. going to say. Cheese whiz yeah. adds personality. Thank you. Good night. Um, also, <laughs> also, yeah. I think for me personally, if you ask yeah. me like point blank, what is your number one comfort food? Sure. The answer would be Wonder Bread, Toasted. And then there's a three-pronger of what's going to go on that to make me feel like I'm fully the most emotionally (laughs) protected because that's what I think of comfort food. It's what makes you feel warm and safe. Tomato. Number one, cheese whiz. Toasted white bread, cheese whiz. Mama. You are going to, you got to try this. I'm going to be buying this in, I have my gluten pills so that I can have a little bit of of bread and stuff. I will be indulging. I love that I just started by saying I'm going to make my eating habits better in the next few days. And I'm like, I am committing to a loaf of white bread and a three prong attack of of comfort food. So again, the first one is Mm -hmm. just cheese whiz. If you've never done it on toast, mwah. Number two. Peanut butter, straight up. Anytime I was sick as a child, as you're like just kind of coming out of it, it was always toast with peanut butter. That was a Mother Laurel special. And that's uh, that's comfort food right there for me. And then the number three, my mouth is watering. I want a piece of white toast. And I want either alphagetti or zoodles. And I want it on that motherfucking toast. You are our grandfather. I am. <laughs> now, does you may know better than me because I believe Alphagetti yeah. and Zoodles only ever existed in Canada. Are these still available? I want to say they're not. And that, again, makes me want to fall on a knife. Alphagetti and Zoodles? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's absolutely Alphagetti in my home. You can get Alphagetti. Yes. And Zoodles. Guess what? <laughs> They'll be in my home within the night, within the next 24 hours. I can't wait. 
Well, and the great thing is it's a canned good, so you could get multiple and stock up. So anytime you come home, you're like, hey. Because this is a habit I want to get into. I want to get into the habit of just just comfort food. Chowing back home. Yeah. Um, For those who don't know, Alpha Gideon Zoodles are like SpaghettiOs, but there is no uh, meatball aspect. It's a different flavor than SpaghettiOs. Sure. So just to be clear, but it's a similar concept for those who might be wondering. And there was one time when I was a child and – Typically, my gran- grandmother would, would care for me uh, and make me my meals in the daytime while my mother was at work. And sure. uh, there was a week where she was not available. She was with uh, our aunt who was giving birth. And so uh, grandpa was in charge of taking care of me for lunches. And mm-hmm. he was like, I'll make you alphagetti. And accidentally, not accidentally, he assumed you made it like you made a Campbell's soup. So he put it sure. in the pot, and then he added a can of water. And let me tell you, it's not what you want it to be. I didn't say a peep. Didn't say a word. I ate it. I choked it down. Uh, I did tell Grandma, though, because I thought she'd get a laugh out of it. She got a kick out of it, for sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, she was like, oh, I should have. T- I didn't think I needed to tell him. Like, he, he could have read the label. But again, that's. <laughs> he tried his best. Oh, this He tried his her. best. He tried his best. Yeah. 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 I mean, the second I think of him, I think of the time that we were there on vacation and they had obviously pre-asked what are favorite foods so that they could like have them in the house and they got Mr. Noodles and grandma had not made those before. And so she made them and she's like, do you drain them? And I'm like, people do, but I don't. Or people people don't drain them, but I do. Because I'm like, I want those noodles dry. And so she... Drained it, we put the seasonings, mix it together or whatever, because it was in its own little cup. And Grandpa looked at it and just went, well, that looks like a dog's breakfast. I was maybe 14 and I've never been more insulted yeah. <laughs> in my life. I was like, it doesn't look that bad. It was a favorite of mine. But I got to tell you, how quippy. Yeah. I feel like we all get it from somewhere and I feel some of it yeah. came from Grandpa. I mean, that's a that's a quick quip. Oh, he was sass and a half in like a heartbeat. Like <laughs> yeah. it didn't take, it didn't take much, but I can hear that tone of like, it was a dog's breakfast. Like it was yeah. like, like that really rough tone of like, Oh, I know the tone. Because he's going for a bit. Yeah. And he's go he's going for the laugh, which, ah, yeah, that's a look in the mirror. Understood. And <laughs> exactly what I'm saying. Again, I feel like we, again, we get it somewhere. Yeah. Um but yes, I, w- I also just want to add to that, and I don't think we've ever said this on the show, maybe we have, I don't know, but our grandmother, uh, that is a true love language, was making you those noodles, because she had she never ate pasta in her entire life. So she would cook it for people, but she would never eat it. She never ate it once. She didn't trust the texture. She's like, I don't like the look of it. I don't trust it. It looks slimy. Wow. Yeah. Which I always found fascinating. I was like, do you want to just try a bite? And she was like, no. <laughs> and then I was like, I respect that too. Wow. She never, she never like poo-pooed it. She was never yucking the yum. She would cook it for you. She right. wouldn't make any comment. But if you asked, hey, what's, why aren't you eating this? Then she would explain like, I don't trust the look of it. It looks slimy. Wow. Yeah. The joke is uh, one of my father's uh, favorite things growing up that she would make him was macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He loved it. Of course, there was a point, and it turns my stomach to even say, there was a point in the 80s 
<sighs> or my family would make a beautiful box of craft dinner. God bless. Like the original oh, classic yeah. stuff that uh -huh. you knew you could count on. The stuff now, it's just not the same. The noodles are slightly different, so it tastes different and it, it's not the point. But like original classic stuff. And, and then they would add a, a can of cream of celery soup. Why? I don't know. I don't know if it was supposed to make it feel like a casserole, but like I have had to eat it multiple times in my life. But thinking back, like right now, I'm like, oh, I could be sick. Do they bake <laughs> it then? Do they put it in a nine by 13? And no. So it's no. just soupy. They put it in there. The the thing is, I'm also, I think they just put the can in. Like, I don't think they actually like the can and the water like you would. Right. But still, it's, it doesn't but feel like it that. Adds would... a, it adds more of a liquid and you just leave it on the stove long enough that then the soup has heated. And it... here's what, here's what I have to tell you. And I don't know how to inform you of this, but I guess I know what else is going in my shopping cart. Like, I have to try this so that I know what you experienced. Like, I just have to know. <laughs> oh, I hated it. I hate I'm it sure I will too, but again, I got it. It just felt like, why are you ruining it? Leave it alone. Also, if you're going to choose it's any- It's its own meal. If you're going to choose- It literally has dinner in the name. <laughs> if you're going to choose a cream-based soup to add, I would also personally vote for a cream of mushroom. You know what I mean? Jazz it up oh, there. Oh, it was- Oh, cream of celery was criminal. Like, what was the point? What were we even doing? I truly think that was like the thought of like, we, we can't just serve craft dinner. Macaroni and cheese. Do you whatever. think like, it we was? We can't just serve that for dinner. We have to kick it up a notch. Do you think it, it was also to like, make it more, like to make it? There's more of a volume because there was multiple people. Like, was was that a part of that? It? Is possible to make it stretch? Interesting. That is possible. I will say, I would rather they add a basic elbow macaroni to bump it up, right? Or just buy a third the, box, second, third box. You know what I mean? Like the soup was. The soup would be more expensive than the craft dinner, to be clear. Oh, my God. And now? Yeah. Those are almost two bucks or more a can. I yell about it every single time I go to the store. I'm like, every time I turn 90, because I pick up a can, I look at my husband and go, remember when these were less than a dollar? <laughs> every single time. How much and is the- um, Twice a month. How much is the Alphagetti going to run me? You could. Well, if you can, if you can get a sale, you can get it for a buck a can. Wow. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Well, listen, usually at our store, it's like buck 25 reg. Or you could get a deal where it's like you're buying so many limit. Right. But at a buck a can. Well, listen, all I have to say is I or love to take buy yourself a flat. Right. I love to take a craft dinner or a, a box macaroni and cheese, and I like to add stuff to it. I want to add, bar, you know, a buffalo sauce, a ranch, sure. uh, some some chicken, or some, uh, you know, or I'll do a completely different take where I put, uh, you know, a can of tuna in there, some chopped up broccoli, maybe half a can of corn. I do like to add so much Parmesan cheese; it gets also like almost weird. It gets really pasty. Mwah! I love to add on. So I have to try this cream of celery soup yeah. craft dinner. And I know I won't like it, but I'll report back. But the thing is, you might. It might become a thing where you're like, I get it. Because we've also had the uh, macaroni with a with a tuna in it. 
God, I wonder if they did the tuna and the cream soup as well. Well, then I'm starting to get more on board. I'm already more on board. Because then you are, you're, then you almost got a casserole, baby. (laughs) Well, then you're hitting all the groups. Yep. Yeah. Put another bone in there. You got yourself a stew. (laughs) Shout out Carl Weathers. Um, (laughs) Well, listen, we're going to, we're going to jump into it because this is a, this is a bulky case. But before we do, what you drinking over there? Oh, uh, I've just I've gone with a with a Slurpee because we're recording a little earlier in the yeah. in the evening. Yeah, and then my hope is that I'm going to run out in the next few days, and uh, the next episode I'll be able to say I'm savoring a Mike's peach. Well, for the for the record, I could eat a peach for hours. Uh, Thank shout you. out face off. Uh, I also have a diet coke and a water going. I just want people to know that I do have of a trifecta course. of liquids going on uh, over here. Almost spilled the water. Just absolutely tipped it. It spilled all over my phone. Fantastic. And my notes. What love. What what a what a You know what? She's a single mom who works too hard and loves again and never stops. We're doing the best we can, folks. Doing the best we can. Now, we're talking, of course, the Barry and Honey Sherman case. And I know that we talked last week about how last week's episode, The Duggars, um, is one of the most requested episodes we've ever ever had. I will say that this is also possibly even more more requests for this case. So I couldn't be happier that we're getting to it. We're doing the thing. I don't know how water went upwards onto my laptop. I don't know how that happened. It is like six inches above where the water spilled. How did that happen? Can't explain it. But the point is, so glad to be talking about this case that obviously has gripped so many people. Uh, and this is, of course, a, a Canadian one. This is based in Toronto. Am I Am I correct? It is. Absolutely. Well, for those who aren't familiar, uh, and uh, anyone perhaps who's, uh, I don't know how well this known this is in the uh, United States of America and around the world, I'll get you up to, up to speed right now. In December 2017, billionaires Barry and Honey Sherman were found dead in their own home. Someone had strangled the couple and then staged the scene to look like a murder-suicide. In the nearly six years since, the Toronto police have still not made any arrests in the case. So join us as Christy takes us through the investigation, including the crime scene, the multiple times that police mishandled everything, and even the relatives that have been identified as possible suspects. Yeah. And look, uh, this is Canadian. Yeah. But as a Canadian, I hadn't heard about it until recently. I yes, I had heard of it only through people saying, "Are you going to do this on the podcast?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, when when you look at it all overarching, you just go, "How is that not solved?" But that's, I mean, we're going to complain about that. I'm sure, uh, probably for the next two hours. So can't wait. On. I look so, forward to it. Disclaimer, as always. Uh, This episode will contain mentions of suicide and substance abuse, so trigger warning for those who need it. Bernard Charles Sherman, known as Barry, was born February 25th, 1942 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He was raised in a middle-class family, which included a sister, Sandra, who was born about 18 months before him. Their father, Herbert, was the president of of a zipper company, which I don't believe I've ever said out loud before, so that was a fun surprise. Uh, in November 1952, Herbert died from a heart attack, 
while at work. It turns out Herbert had a congenital heart defect that he had chosen not to tell his family about. He was just 46 years old at the time of his death. Barry was just 10 when his father died. After Herbert's death, his family struggled financially. His wife, Sarah, took in boarders to help pay the bills. She went back to work, later becoming an occupational therapist. In high school, uh, Barry learned he had a real aptitude for math and science. In grade 13, Barry graduated from Forest Hill Collegiate as the top student in the province. Wow. Yeah. And yes, grade 13 was an option in the province of Ontario, although it was only called grade 13 between 1921 and 1988. After that, it was referred to as the Ontario Academic Credit, Credit or OAC, which apparently phased out in 2003. Right after I got out of there. Yeah. Oh, that's a kick to the box. I know. I was one of the last last years that had OAC. Yeah. Wow. Five years of high school. Uh, I liked it. I, I liked the extra year, but, you know. Oh, well. <laughs> I didn't hate school. <laughs> <laughs> I would have preferred if high school was three years, but that's fair. That's <laughs> neither here nor there. Uh, I used to tease my kids all the time that we were going to wait till they uh, got to grade 12 and then move to Ontario so they'd have to do grade 13. Um, I know that's not how it works, uh, but it just really made me laugh. And they would always be like, no, like we wouldn't like make them think we were really doing it. But still, it's the closest to dad jokes I get. And listen, it is also it was also optional, just to be clear. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you what option I would have taken. And I got it. Yeah. 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 You and I had different high school experiences, but also I think if I stayed in one town, Yes. I might not have disliked it as much as I did because I got to a, I switched high schools in the middle of high school. Yeah. And that's cruel. And that I did not care for. I so, don't think anybody would. You know, no, no. Oh, God. But it is what it is. So Barry is the top student of Ontario high schools. But at that point, like back in the 50s, They gave out awards called firsts. To receive a first, a student must receive an A grade, which at the time was a mark over 75%. I am shocked that an A is not just anything over 90, but different times. Uh, I mean... Uh, things changed by the time I got into high school because, good God, the amount of firsts I would have got <laughs> if it was if 75 was our bar. Yeah, that's not the point. But in his final year, Barry received 14 firsts, which made him the top student in the province. The next kid closest, I think, got 11 or 12. Um, it was a really big deal. They did newspaper articles about him, all that sort of thing. So after graduation, Barry helped his mother pay the bills by going to work for his mother's brother, Lou Winter. Lou had a degree in biochemistry and ran two companies, Winter Laboratories and Empire Laboratories. Winter Labs was a medical testing lab that did pregnancy tests. 
Uh, Long before tests were available in stores, women would drop off a urine sample at a pharmacy. Winter labs would go pick it up, test it, and then take the results back to the pharmacy. Empire Labs was started the year Brett, Brett, Barry graduated from high school. Empire was the first Canadian company to produce and distribute generic versions of name brand drugs. It's like how Tylenol and acetaminophen are basically the same thing, but any generic brand of acetaminophen is far cheaper than any Tylenol you'll find. Right. I don't really get how it's legal to use a patented drug formula, modify it just slightly, and then create a cheaper version. But apparently there are legal loopholes that make it possible. So Barry would spend his summers working for Uncle Lou at both of these labs. He would collect the urine samples from the winter lab, and then he would drop off the drugs at the pharmacies for Empire. During the academic year, Barry attended the University of Toronto as one of the youngest students in their engineering science program. In 1962, Lou Winter's wife, Beverly, was diagnosed with leukemia. At the time, the Winters had four children under the age of four. After Beverly's first round of treatment, Lou took her on a three-week vacation to Bermuda. While Lou was gone, Barry helped run things over at Empire, which had just started manufacturing a generic form of aspirin. At the time, Empire had a large contract for this generic aspirin with the Towers department store. While Lou was in Bermuda, Empire Labs received a call from Towers stating they needed a lot more of the tablets than they had originally agreed upon. Apparently, this cheaper generic version was selling faster than they could put it on the shelves. So Barry takes it upon himself to contact their supplier negotiate the price for extra product, which he managed to get at a lower price than usual. He then organized around-the-clock production to fill this new larger order. And according to a memoir that Barry wrote in the 90s, he claimed Lou was very pleased with what Barry had done. After Lou and Beverly returned from Bermuda, Lou went back to running things as normal, and Beverly eventually went into remission. Barry graduated from the University of Toronto in 1964, where he received the Governor General's Award for his thesis. After graduation, Barry headed to Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston with the dream of one day working for NASA. Then in November 1965, Lou suddenly died from an aneurysm. He was just 41 years old. Then 17 days later, Lou's wife, Beverly, died of leukemia. Oh, my God. Which uh, had just returned months prior. Beverly was just 31. Oof. At the time of their deaths, Lou and Beverly had four sons, seven-year-old Tim, five-year-old Jeffrey, four-year-old Carrie, and three-year-old Dana. So what happened to the children? Well, according to Beverly's brother, Wayne, she didn't want her children to go to anyone in the family. Apparently, Beverly wanted her children to be raised Jewish, and Beverly's family were not Jewish in any way. 
Beverly had actually converted to Judaism when she married Lou. And since family was out of the question, Beverly's rabbi helped find a home for the kids within the Jewish community, a urologist named Martin Barkin and his wife Carol, who worked as a schoolteacher, took the boys in and eventually adopted them. Apparently, some people suggested that if Barry was so close to his uncle, that Barry should have taken the kids. But to that I say, Barry was 23 years old at the time. How could someone expect him to take on four children under the age of seven when he had never taken care of a child before? And yes, I know in some circumstances people have done something similar. I just find it to be a ridiculous suggestion, especially when Barry was an atheist and Beverly very clearly wanted her children raised in the Jewish faith. In a memoir written in the mid-90s, Barry said he recognized no God and that he rejected religion and free will in choice of logical deduction. So yeah. Not exactly what Beverly had in mind. So Lou's will appointed a company called Royal Trust to be the executor of his will and the trustee of his estate. Barry approached Royal Trust just three days after Beverly's death and offered to take over operations at Empire Labs. He said that he would buy all of Lou's assets two months later, but his offer was rejected. Two years later, Barry graduated from MIT with a PhD in astrophysics. And while NASA had been Barry's initial dream, he decided to return to Toronto, where he made a second bid for control of Empire Labs. This time, Barry offered $250,000 cash for the company and agreed to assume responsibility for the company's $200,000 debt Barry also said that when Lou's four sons were older, they would each be given a job at Empire, as well as the opportunity to purchase 5% of the company's shares. However, the option would only be available if Barry or his business partner, who was his best friend from high school, Joel Ulster, uh, remained in control of the business. Since their offer was $100,000 more than the only current offer on the table, Royal Trust agreed. So thanks to loans from their parents, Barry put in $250,000, Joel Ulster put in $150,000, and Empire Labs was theirs. According to Barry's memoir, uh, Barry said that he and Joel agreed Barry would be president, Joel would be vice president, Barry was responsible for quality control, production, and product development. Joel would handle sales, accounting, administration, and personnel. Unfortunately, it turns out by the time Barry and Joel stepped in, they learned Empire Labs had been very poorly run. Uh, one example is the company was manufacturing vitamin C tablets that would just fall apart. So pharmacies just refused to accept them as a product when making tablets like this uh, it's complicated but like there's there's actual active ingredients and then there's ingredients that are just used as fillers that are meant to just keep the tablets together so barry who uh, i mean he was incredibly smart but also 
his degrees were in like astrophysics. He personally worked on a formula, discovered fillers that could be used that were not only cheaper than what they were previously using, but that also would prevent the tablets from falling apart. Um, there is also the fact that one of the doctors working for Empire had started his own generic pharmaceutical manufacturing company called Novafarm. Novafarm had not only been a serious competitor of Empire's, it turns out Empire Labs had been supplying Novafarm with products in bulk that they would then sell to pharmacies at a lower cost to undercut Empire. Um, I don't know how that was allowed to go for, on for as long as it did, but that doctor was fired from Empire. Right. So, but... Uh, by 1971, Barry turned Empire into a thriving company, which caught the eye of an American firm. So when the company made Joel and Barry a huge offer on Empire, they agreed to sell. But Barry, because again, so smart, he made sure that there was not any sort of non-compete clause in the contract. And once they were sold, he then created his own generic pharmaceutical company called Apotex, which he then turned into a full global enterprise. The year before the Empire sale, Joel Ulster's wife, Cindy, who was a nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital, met a young candy striper named Honey Reich. And Deborah Reich, known as Honey, was born January 25th, 1947, her parents spent much of World War II in a labor camp in Poland. After they were freed, they were sent to a displaced persons camp in Austria, where Honey was born. The Reichs soon emigrated to Canada, where they welcomed a second child named Mary. And in the late 1960s, the Reichs opened a small shoe store at the intersection of Kiel and Dundas. Hey, there you go. Uh, Honey attended the University of Toronto with the hopes of becoming a teacher. After graduation, she ended up at the Ontario College of Education before spending five years teaching the fifth grade at a school in Etobicoke. During this training, Honey volunteered at Mount Sinai Hospital to keep herself busy during the summer. And that's where she met Cindy Ulster, who introduced her to Barry Sherman in August 1970. It was said that... Uh, Honey volunteered at the hospital because she wanted to meet a nice Jewish doctor. And Cindy went, well, I know an, uh, a doctor, but he's a PhD, not an MD. But the couple met August 1970. They were married July 2nd, 1971. So quickly. In October 1975, the couple welcomed their first child, Lauren. Then after several miscarriages, Barry and Honey turned to surrogacy, and they welcomed Jonathan in January 1983, Alexandra in April 1986, and Kaylin in November 1990. Over the next 30 years, the Sherman family prospered, Barry's company Apotex continued to grow well, and according to McLean's, which does not get more Canadian than having just said that, yeah. by late 2017... Apotex medications filled 90 million prescriptions in Canada a year, which works out to be one of every five, which is a lot of prescriptions, but I can't get into it. 
Uh, Lauren moved to BC where she was raising a son. Jonathan and his husband, Fred Mercure, started the process of surrogacy with financial help from Barry. Alexandra uh, is a registered nurse who is married uh, to Brad Krawchick. They have a son who is about nine or ten now and a daughter who is almost six. The youngest Sherman, Kalen, married Jared Render in April 2018. They separated three months later and divorced the following year. So in 1990, after they have Kalen, the family moved into a custom-built home at 50 Old Colony Road in Toronto's North York area. Four years later, Barry and Honey noticed construction and design flaws that involved the air conditioning system, as well as the roof of their underground parking garage. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, They sued the construction company, architects, and anyone involved in building the house. The case dragged on for years. By 2002, they had settled with everybody except for one company. But in 2016... Barry and Honey purchased a property in Toronto's Forest Hill area so that they could be closer to their grandchildren. They planned to build a new home there and had been working with architects throughout 2017. The home was slated to cost $30 million. Wow, wow, wow. Yep. In anticipation of the move, the Sherman's house on Old Colony Road was put on market in December 2017 for $6.9 million. It was a six-bedroom house with over 12,000 square feet. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, tennis uh, tennis court in the back, underground parking, indoor lap pool. Like, it just kind of kept going. Uh, but if we're going to talk about, how, about the house, well, that brings us to the day in question. On Friday, December 15th, 2017, the Sherman's housekeeper arrived at 8.30 a.m. She had been coming to the Sherman's house every Friday for the past three years. She noticed there were some newspapers sitting outside the front door. When she, uh, she, when she unlocked the front door, she went to instinctively turn off the home's alarm system, but she found that it had not yet been set. Interesting. So the housekeeper worked started on the main floor. She found an iPhone lying on the floor in the bathroom, which was located just off the main door. The phone was later determined to belong to Honey Sherman. The housekeeper then headed upstairs, where she said the bed in the master bedroom had not been slept in. Around 10 a.m., real estate agent Elise Stern arrived. She shared the listing with a second agent who on that day was in on vacation in Florida. Elise had been trying to contact Barry and Honey about doing a showing that morning, but she wasn't able to get a hold of either of them. So she just decided to take a chance and agreed to the showing that day anyway. Shortly after Elise got there, another real estate agent arrived with a man and woman who were interested in the property. Elise started the home tour upstairs, then took the other agent and the two clients on a tour of the main floor. When they got to the basement, Elise noticed a pair of driving gloves and a home inspection report on the floor near the door to the garage. 
She picked them up and continued down the long hallway, which led to the indoor lap pool. When she opened the pool room, the overhead lights were off, but the lights inside the pool were on, so you could kind of make out, like, outlines of things. Elise uh, was able to kind of see the shape of two people sitting near the pool. Uh, She quickly ushered the tour back upstairs. She told them that they had caught the homeowners doing yoga. She suggested they reschedule the viewing for another day and kind of like really shoved this other agent and the clients out the door. When the gardener arrived, um, the gardener came in twice a week to water plants. Gardener arrives at 1130 a.m. Elise asked the gardener to check the pool room just to verify that Elise had seen what she had seen. The gardener went and the gardener went inside and immediately came out and asked for someone to call the police. The real estate agent Elise immediately called Honey's sister Mary Shetman, who in turn called Barry and Honey's children. After the call with Mary, Elise then called nine one one. I don't know why it happened in that order. Yeah. Uh, another curious point is, according to investigative journalist and author Kevin Donovan, who I will reference quite a lot uh, throughout this episode, that 911 call was made almost 90 minutes after the bodies were discovered. Uh-huh. What were they doing for over an hour before the police were called? The 911 call was placed at 11.43 a.m., When police arrived, they discovered the bodies of Barry and Honey Sherman in a seated position at the end of the pool. Each had a men's leather belt wrapped around their necks, which was then tied above their heads to a three-foot-high railing, which prevented the bodies from falling over. Barry's right leg was crossed neatly over his left, and his glasses were still neatly placed on his face. His jacket was pulled slightly off his shoulders. Honey was in a similar position with her own jacket pulled just slightly off her shoulders. And while Barry's face was untouched, Honey had abrasions on her face that didn't have any sort of bruising. So according to the pathologist, this means either Honey was struck after she died, or she died immediately. After she was struck. It's possible that she was hit with an object or possibly her face hit the ground before she was moved or while she was being moved. Uh, There were drag marks in the pool area indicating that Barry and Honey had likely been killed and then placed by the pool. And eerily, in a room upstairs in the Sherman's home, there was an art installation that looked like two human figures. I am not artsy, so forgive me for saying that these things are terrifying. But basically, it's the shape of a man and a woman, and they're just, like, made out of random found objects. I don't really get it. Uh, But if the movie Empire Records taught me anything, it's that artists don't have to explain their art to me. But the two statues are in seated positions, And the male statue has one leg crossed over the other. And since Barry's right leg was crossed over his left, 
It almost seems like Barry and Honey were posed to imitate those statues. Maybe, maybe that's a leap that people have taken. I don't know. But we wouldn't even know about those statues if it wasn't for investigative journalist Kevin Donovan, who published a book about the case in 2019. The Billionaire Murders documentary was based on that book. Uh, After the book was published, the real estate agent who had taken the photos of the Sherman's house contacted Kevin Donovan and gave him the photos, which showed the very creepy sculptures. I will post them. No one's going to want to see them. They're just, it's just weird. And I don't get it. But, you know, to each their own. I'm not going to, I should stop yucking on a yum. Yeah. Listen, you you know, art is subjective and, and, uh, you know, sometimes I'll say it weird. Yeah. And look, Barry and Honey seem to like it enough to have it in their house. Their kids hated it. I've just pulled it up for reference and I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. It's, it's, I'll say this, it's very bold. It's very bold. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And large for what I would like in my own home. But then again, if I could get a Funko Pop that size, I'd do it. Yeah. So, I mean, again, to each their own. Yeah. To each their own. So, paramedics said that the couple had been dead for at least a day, if not longer, as rigor mortis had passed and their limbs were now limp. Barry and Honey Sherman were one of the wealthiest and most philanthropic couples in Canada. At the time of their deaths, Barry was 75 and Honey was 70. A member of the Toronto Police Department made a statement to reporters outside the Sherman's house at 8 p.m. the night the bodies were discovered. Uh, They stated there was no sign of forced entry and there was no cause for concern over public safety because the police believed the Sherman's deaths were a murder-suicide. Yes, police saw a husband and a wife clearly posed, sitting side by side, and their first thought was, clearly, the husband killed the wife and then himself. And look, I'm not an expert, but it is natural for your body to fight off death. So if Barry did hang himself, his body would have involuntarily moved as he fought the lack of oxygen. And yet, his Glasses were neatly on his face. His leg was crossed over the other in a very relaxed position. It's just... It's based on their... Also, based on their positions, there wasn't enough height for either of them to die being hanged that way. Because they were sitting, and the railing that they were hanging from was only three feet high. So there wouldn't have been enough leverage for uh that to happen again i'm no expert but to me that is what was clearly clearly this was not a murder suicide but i'm not a i'm not a cop so an autopsy was performed on december 16th by pathologist dr michael pickup he noted that barry's hyoid bone was not broken the hyoid bone, which we have mentioned on the show before, uh, is a horseshoe-shaped bone between the thyroid and the chin, and it is usually broken when someone is strangled very violently. According to author Kevin Donovan, in suicide cases that don't involve a long drop, the hyoid bone is rarely broken. So does that mean Barry really did hang himself? 
No, I just don't. I absolutely don't believe that. Dr. Pickup also noted abrasions on both Barry's and Honey's wrists, which likely came from a zip tie or a zap strap. He couldn't tell whether the victim's hands had been bound in front of their body or behind. And since there were no zip ties at the scene, it seems most likely the killer took them when they fled the scene. The pathologist declared Barry and Honey's cause of death to be ligature compression, which is a fancy doctory way of saying strangulation. It was also determined that Barry and Honey died between 9 p.m. and midnight on December 13th, which was about 36 hours before their bodies were found. The Sherman children refused to believe the murder-suicide theory that the police had originally announced, so they hired a lawyer who asked for a second opinion on the autopsy. Dr. David Chason performed a second autopsy on December 20th. It was determined it would have been impossible for Barry or Honey to hang themselves in the position they were found in. As in the first autopsy, the second doctor noted abrasions on the victim's wrists, and while they were found with belts around their necks, it turns out the belts did not cause Barry and Honey's deaths. The pathologist discovered very thin ligature marks around the victim's necks. In the end, the second opinion seemed to agree with the first, that the Shermans were strangled to death, but this one determined their deaths to be a double homicide. The day after that second autopsy, Barry and Honey were laid to rest after a shared funeral on December 21st. Due to the fact that the Shermans were very, very well known, their children opted to have a large public funeral at like a convention center because more than 6,000 people attended that funeral, including Toronto's then mayor, John Tory, Ontario's then premier, Kathleen Wynne, and Canada's own prime minister, Mr. Justin Trudeau. The entire event was also live streamed. Wow. Which, uh, if I go first, don't. <laughs> you don't want me. You don't want me to put it on Patreon. Gosh, shit. Fine for the patrons. <laughs> oh my god! I think we can keep that private. I think that's a completely reasonable ask. Yeah, completely it reasonable. Just, you can stream out. mine to the masses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I actually think I would want that private too. I would think so. But um, it does make me think, oh God, who was it? I think it was Gabrielle Union um, did an interview where someone's like, I hear you've planned out your funeral. She's like, I absolutely have. And they're like, oh, are you being serious? She's like, I have a folder that has given like notes and tips on what I would like said things they should avoid saying the pictures that are to be chosen because she's like, there's no way I'm going to overwatch this, watch over this whole funeral and find out they've chosen the worst photos of me possible. Also Gabrielle union. I doubt there is a worst photo of you, but um, it just made me laugh that she's like, of course I have. I've chosen the music. I've chosen everything so it can be perfect. And now I'm like, fuck, now I need a funeral folder. Yeah, we need some death folders. Yeah. yeah. And she made it very, like, 
I don't understand why you're making fun of this because the per like the whoever she was being interviewed by was like, that's kind of too much, isn't it? And she's like, really? I first of all, I'd like to get it how I think I would like it. Also, doesn't that take the burden off the person that's putting it together? They know exactly how I want it to go. And that was the moment I went, fuck, she's so right. Don't yuck her funeral. Yum. A hundred percent. Uh, shout out Gabrielle Union. Yes. I love her. Uh, so Toronto police finally did a press conference where they publicly announced that Barry and Honey Sherman were murdered. And that might have been news to some people, but most had already learned that information when it was printed in a local newspaper a week before. Why did it take so long for the police to consider this case? a murder, and what horrific mistakes were made during this investigation? Well, we're going to find out after the break. I can't wait! Um, <laughs> go eat the can, grab another drink, and we're going to be back with more about Barry and Honey Sherman on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Barry and Honey Sherman case. Before the break, Christy was alluding to police maybe not doing their jobs. And to that, I say, what's new on this show? That's next. I mean, we have been praising police a lot. Lately. We do it Am when I they are. I think maybe in two episodes this year. Well, as we've always said, we point out when it's bad and we point out when it's good. If it's bad more yeah. than it's good, that's not because we're choosing it. We just, we call it like we see it. A hundred percent. I think uh, we're <laughs> we're doing our best. Us, yeah. them, some, sometimes uh, them, not so much. Exactly. But it's fine. It's fine. So- before we get too much further, I thought we should look at the last day that Barry and Honey Sherman were alive. So on Wednesday, December 13th, and this was 2017, Barry and Honey's personal trainer, Denise Gold, was at the house around 8.30 a.m. She worked with Barry until 9.30 and then worked with Honey until 11.30. While Denise was there... Honey showed off the two new belts she'd bought for Barry. 
Honey was known to be very frugal. Um, so she was incredibly proud of finding these belts on sale for just $10 each at Canadian Tire. Uh, the fact that I found out it was Canadian Tire, I wasn't going to mention it, but then I was like, the more Canadian content in this episode, the better. I love that. But I guess the only other thing I say is Canadian Tire sells belts. Do they sell clothing they do. now? Um, I mean, they'll sell like whatever... Like, if I went into Canadian Tire right now, I could get a Rough Rider shirt. No shit! Or probably, probably an Oilers, maybe a Flames. And a belt? Yes. The joke is, I actually think I've purchased a belt from there for my husband before. Because it's just like, here's a rack of, you know, random leather belts. And it's like, well, once we lost Sears... We kind of lost our option for belts. And I guess also, I'm not speaking, I'm just speaking generally. Canadian Tire attracts a lot of men and men one-stop shop. They can pick up a belt while they're there. I guess that makes sense. Other people shop there, but you know what I'm saying. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. The the stereotypical demographic that perhaps they think they're catering to, you know. Of course. Or And also for the women who go there, they walk in and go, and a belt for him. Yep. So I could absolutely... Or for uh, me, because I like a man's style. Why not? The amount of times I've gone into that store is outrageous. $10 each. These were billionaires, right? Oh, yes. But Mm -hmm. I mean, again, Honey did not grow up in it. Right. So I think that was part of her thing. She was also huge about giving a lot to charity. So I think she was... She liked very nice clothes, jewelry, shoes, that kind of thing. But I think she was, like, really wanted to watch money in other right. aspects, if right. possible. So, uh, yeah, I get it. Um, But of the two belts, Barry wore one of them to work that day. Um, It is believed that those two belts were the ones that were found around their necks, Later on, which also then makes you go, was Barry wearing a belt when he's, his body was found? It's never been said. Interesting. And then that means someone went all the way upstairs to the to their bedroom to get the second belt and then went all the way back downstairs to the pool to s- set the scene Unless she had left it downstairs where she was showing the personal trainer. I wonder where the personal trainer was versus where the pool is. Yeah. Do they have a gym? I don't know. Feels like in a house like that, they likely would, would have at least, a, they... at least an area. Yeah. Yes, I agree. At least some sort of area where they're working out. That is more than possible. I thought for some reason it was left in their bedroom, but... I could be wrong. Well, it also could have been. It also could have been, yeah. Did that person go in that house and go, I need to make sure I, like, did they look around? Like, what could I possibly use? And they used his belt. And they're like, well, we should go find another belt. Well, like, yeah, great point. Great point. Because we know that the belts weren't the murder weapons. So, yeah, they could have had time to go around the house also. If we know they were killed in another way, then they could have been, yeah. Yeah. We also don't know how long the person was in the house right. before the murders. But I mean, I'm getting so far ahead of us, but we're just really excited. 
We're jazzed. We're vibrating on a specific level and we're ready to go. We are. Uh, So at 10.30 a.m., Barry arrived at Apotex, uh, where he remained for the rest of the workday. At 10.51 a.m., Barry replied to an email from his son, Jonathan, asking for a bank transfer of $17,677, which had something to do with the surrogacy process that Jonathan and his husband were going through at the time. Barry asked one of his staff members to arrange the transfer. A week before, Barry sent over $311,000 to the company that was handling the surrogacy. Um, After the workout, Honey had a three-hour massage at the house and then ran some errands and met up with friends. At 5 p.m., Honey and some architects arrived at Apotex to go over plans for the Sherman's new house. Honey and the architects left the office shortly after 6 p.m. Honey then did some Hanukkah shopping for her newest grandchild, who was born less than two weeks earlier. Uh, She arrived home estimated around like 8.20, maybe 8.30-ish. Honey entered the home through the side door, which, according to family and friends, was the main door that the couple used. One possible theory uh, was that an intruder was waiting inside the house. And when Honey entered the house, she was attacked. Since Honey's cell phone was found in a main floor bathroom, it's believed that Honey tried, like, ran upstairs to that bathroom to try and lock herself in, maybe to call the police. Family and friends say Honey never used the front door or that particular bathroom, so it was strange for her phone to be there. Barry sent an email from his work computer at 8.23 p.m. and headed home. It would be the last time that anyone would hear from Barry Sherman. He likely arrived home around 9 p.m., pulling into the garage. The wall between the garage and the pool is made of glass blocks, So if the killer was somewhere in that basement, especially near that pool area, they would have seen exactly when Barry arrived. It is possible Barry was attacked the moment he stepped inside because his driving gloves and a house appraisal document that his realtor had asked him to get were found lying on the floor just inside the garage door. Author Kevin Donovan believes that Barry's hands were then bound and that he was taken to the pool area to be shown that his wife was dead. If that's true, then the killer or killers had a very personal grudge against Barry, but we will get to the suspects in a moment. The following day, Honey missed a board meeting and Barry didn't show up for work or respond to any emails. Honey's sister and their realtor, Elise Stern, tried calling, but got no answer. The Sherman's daughter, Alexandra, sent pictures of her children via text message. Parents didn't respond, but no one was actually scheduled to go to the house. Honey's assistant, Sheila Stanley, is usually at the house Monday to Friday from 10 to 2.30. However, Sheila had Thursday, Friday off that week because she was taking a family trip to Mexico. So either Barry and Honey's killer got very lucky that no one was coming to the house, or they were close enough to the couple that they knew their schedule, 
and the murders happened on a Wednesday, Honey and Barry were set to fly to Florida, where they had a vacation home, the following Monday. So if this was a random attack, the killer again got lucky that the Shermans were even home. It just felt very planned, especially since as of September 2023, the killers have never been caught. But despite the Toronto police initially believing that this was a murder-suicide, even though the bodies were clearly staged, they eventually came around and did agree it was a double homicide. But by the time they actually started investigating the case as a double homicide, six weeks had passed. Uh. By that point, the Sherman children had obtained a lawyer who gathered retired police officers and private investigators to start a murder investigation of their own. So at the time, there were two separate investigations happening at the same time. But we're going to focus on the Toronto police investigation. Uh, the fact that they waited six full weeks to fully investigate this case is insane. What took them so long? Was it because they were distracted with something else? Well, what was not publicly known at the time was that many, many members of the Toronto Police Department Homicide Department, Division, whatever we're calling it, were looking into a 66-year-old landscaper as a possible serial killer. On December 7th, which less than a week before Barry and Honey's death, uh, police finally got a break in that case. They discovered pictures on a computer owned by Bruce MacArthur, which would lead to his conviction eight months later. MacArthur was arrested on January 17th, 2018. He was, of course, responsible for the deaths of eight gay men between 2010 and 2017. For more information on Bruce, listen to episode 38. 38! Were we ever so young? Oh, God! Uh, and for a deep cut to that episode, I'm just going to say, power case! If you know, you know. Thank you. So, is it possible that the Toronto police were distracted or maybe just preoccupied while they were closing in on MacArthur? Absolutely. So it's no surprise that another case would get overlooked from the time that the new evidence came in on December 7th until MacArthur's arrest on January 17th. I'm not saying I understand other cases getting pushed aside. I'm just saying, yeah. I'm not surprised. So, other concerns that I have about the Toronto Police Department regarding the Sherman case include the fact that they knew that Do Dr. Chason did a second set of autopsies on the victims. And yet, they waited five weeks before asking the doctor what the results were. Wow. And then... There's the fact that they waited over a month before viewing any security video from the lobby of Apotex to see if anybody had, you know, maybe visited uh, Barry that day. That may not seem odd uh, to anyone because the police at the time were claiming it was a murder-suicide. So why would they have to look at the um, security video? However, the police interviewed the Sherman's personal trainer, Denise Gould, the day after the bodies were found. 
They outright asked Denise if she saw any marks on Barry or Honey's wrists on the day of the murders. This means the police knew about the zip tie marks and that the Sherman's hands had both been bound at some point. So that means they would have known right away it was absolutely not a murder-suicide, but rather a double homicide. To suggest otherwise is just completely insane to me and makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, And since the Sherman's house was for sale at the time, that meant there was a lockbox hanging from the front door handle um, several days after the bodies were found. One of the real estate agents contacted the police to ask if the key was actually still inside the lockbox. Because they thought, oh, God, maybe that's how the bad guys got in, right? Uh, The police then went, huh, we didn't think to check. Wow. Uh, Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, the agent gave the police the code that was needed to open the box. The key was in the box. For unknown reasons... Police waited eight months before collecting any DNA from Denise Gold, the personal trainer who told police she was probably the last person in the house before Barry and Honey's deaths. Uh, Kalen Sherman's soon-to-be father-in-law said he spent dozens of hours at the Sherman's house. He was fixing a dumbwaiter in the house that didn't seem to be working. He had some sort of elevator repair business so it made sense that he would come in he said his fingerprints would be all over that house but the police never once contacted him at all which you know is a great way to eliminate whether or not people are suspects yep you know dna or fingerprints that should or should not be in that home but you know neither here nor there Uh, According to the Sherman family lawyer, the police failed to properly examine the crime scene since they initially said it was a murder-suicide, and yet the scene looked way too staged to be a suicide at all. Six weeks after the murder, police turned the crime scene over to the secondary investigators who were working with the Sherman family lawyer. These new investigators discovered 25 fingerprint or partial palm prints in the house That had not been collected by the police. And in December 2021, police held a press conference to release a surveillance video from a neighbor of the Shermans. The video shows a man walking quickly past the house in the direction of the Shermans' house. The man then disappears for a suspicious amount of time and then is seen retracing his steps, walking back the opposite way. As of September 2023, that man has still never been identified, even though he has a very unusual gait, because it looks like he's almost kicking up a foot every time he walks. But if you see a suspicious man in the area at the time of the crime, why not release the information ASAP instead of, you know, maybe waiting four years to release the information? It's the fact that they waited so long um, that I'll never fully understand. But the reason that it took them so long was they were quietly trying to do a tower dump, which means checking the records of cell phones that pinged off a nearby tower at the time the man was seen on video. 
the man would have actually had to have been using his phone at the time um, to make that photo, that tower dump worthwhile. But the dump gave police thousands of options and they just needed a few years to narrow it down. Oh my God. Also, maybe if you showed the public immediately, someone would be like, I recognize that walk. If it and was it would, unique, yeah. Because it absolutely was. And that's, oh, God. So because of this tower dump that they did, police then said the information they need to solve this case could possibly lie in one of five other countries. They won't say which other countries, but police were asked, well, so if you potentially maybe think this mystery man is from another country, did you check the security cameras at either of the airports in Toronto to see if the man was there in and around the murders? And the police said, nah, we didn't think of that. <laughs> oh, God. It's the fact that they didn't just say no. It was no, we actually didn't think of that. Like they may as well have gone, no, shit, that's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. And while some of these issues with the police were a cause for concern with Barry and Honey's children, in a surprising move, they ended up shutting down the private investigation that was going on and fully backing the Toronto police. In December 2019, on the second anniversary of the murders, the police held a press conference to publicly announce that the Sherman's case was considered ongoing and the private investigation had come to an end. It was then asked anyone who'd submitted a tip to the private investigation needs to resubmit it to the Toronto police. They didn't so, have all the, they didn't have, like they couldn't just forward all the tips? I guess not. You know what would have helped in that situation? Having a database where you could enter it so it would all be properly filed. <laughs> Power case! Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so knowing everything that we do, who do we think is behind the murders? Now, some have suggested it was a professional hit since the killer or killers didn't seem to leave behind any evidence. I'm not disagreeing, but I think the killer also got incredibly lucky with the police allegedly being distracted in the first few weeks of the investigation. Since nothing of value seemed to be missing from the scene, it's probably safe to assume it wasn't a robbery. It should be noted, in 2016, the year before the murders, police logged 160 break-ins on Old Colony Road, which included the loss of millions of dollars worth of jewelry. And apparently one of those break-ins was at the Shermans. Someone broke in through their skylight, although I don't know what, if anything, was taken. And while some of the homeowners were home at the time of these break-ins, no violence ever occurred during them. So it's unlikely the murders were connected in any way to these break-ins. And from the best I can tell, nothing was taken from their home on the night of the murders, so it doesn't seem likely that their deaths were part of any sort of robbery. But since it seemed as though the killer knew Barry and Honey's schedule, it's safe to assume that it likely wasn't a random attack. So whether it was a professional hit or not, 
Barry and Honey's deaths definitely seemed personal. And it's possible that Barry was the main target and Honey was killed because she was a witness uh, or vice versa. So who was angry enough at either Barry or Honey Sherman to kill them? Some have suggested due to the immense success of Apotex, maybe the head of some big pharma competitor was angry enough to have Barry killed. And while I'm no expert, I just don't see it because killing Barry would not automatically kill his company. At the time, it operated in 45 countries throughout the world. Um, They claimed there was a major presence uh, in Canada, the United States, Mexico, and India. In 2019, a financial advisor estimated that Apotex was worth up to $3 billion. It did end up being sold to a private firm in 2022 for an undisclosed amount. My point is just, if this competitor killed him because he was a competitor, they didn't get rid of the competition. Right. That's, it was just, it's silly to even think it. Uh, And maybe it's simply the fact that Barry had an obscene amount of money that made him a target. Maybe it was the fact that Barry was known to be cutthroat when it came to business. Or maybe the killer had some sort of personal vendetta against the Shermans. So there are three specific suspects um, who might have had a bone to pick with the victims. First up is Carrie Winter, who is one of Barry's cousins. Now, to get to Carrie as a suspect, we need to look into the background of their relationship. As I mentioned earlier, Lou Winter's four sons were orphaned in November 1965 after the deaths of both Lou and his wife Beverly, just 17 days apart. And since Beverly wanted her sons raised in the Jewish faith, they were taken in by a married couple within the local Jewish community. The four boys would later describe their adoptive father as difficult and their adoptive mother as cold. By 15, Carrie moved out to a rooming house, which is basically a house that rents out rooms to various tenants. Uh, Despite not living at home, Carrie did continue going to school. However, while at school, he was arrested for selling marijuana and hash. He spent six months in a correctional facility. After he was released, one of Carrie's uncles used his connections to get Carrie into Ashbury College in Ottawa. After graduation, Carrie headed to London, England, where he took honors English at Richmond College. Carey then went for his master's at San Diego University, but he eventually dropped out to travel the world. During a stop in Peru, Carey began to use heroin and crack cocaine, which led to years of substance abuse, although Carey claims he has been sober since 2012. Carrie's brothers also had struggles of their own. Jeffrey was diagnosed as bipolar and was in and out of treatment centers. Dana got heavily into drugs. In 1998, or sorry, 1988, Barry reunited with his cousins and started providing for Carrie, Dana, and Jeffrey. The fourth cousin, Tim, was working as a chef at the time and said that he didn't need Barry's financial assistance. 
Barry gave the other three cousins money to start their own businesses, so Carrie started a construction company, Dana started a jewelry business, and Jeffrey started making custom CDs. Barry bought them homes, vacation homes, he gave them monthly allowances of sometimes up to $20,000, Barry also paid his cousins credit card bills, he lent them millions of dollars at a time. By 2000, it was estimated that Barry had given his cousins about $15 million, at the very least. In 1995, Barry had grown concerned about Dana's substance abuse, so he sent Dana to a remote fishing village in British Columbia to get clean. Uh, during his stay in BC, Dana did get clean and decided he liked being there and wanted to stay. He ended up marrying a local woman named Julia, and they had two children. And at some point after that second child was born, Dana ended up falling off the wagon. He was later charged with conspiracy in the murder of a local drug dealer. Barry bailed Dana out of jail, and shortly after, Dana died of a heroin overdose. He was just 33 years old. Mm. In 1999, Jeffrey started looking over the documents that were included in the 1967 sale of Empire Labs, which of course belonged to Lou, their father, and it was purchased by Barry and his friend Joel. Um, Jeffrey noticed a section that mentioned Barry offering the four cousins 5% of Empire's stock when they became adults. Uh, so Jeffrey immediately said, well, okay, then you owe us 5% of your company, which is hundreds of millions of dollars. The, th the thing is, the company that they would have been given shares of, Barry sold that company four years after he bought it. But the cousins believe, because Barry has a new company, well, they believe they should be given 5% of Apotex, even though it's a completely separate company. But when you look at the original contract, when Barry purchased Empire, it stated that Lou's four sons would be given the opportunity to work for Empire once they turned 21 or completed some sort of post-secondary. Once the boys became employees, they would be required to work for Empire for two years before being given the right to purchase 5% of Empire's shares. So it's possible that Barry worded the purchase of Empire one way, but had the contract written another way. But based on the wording of the contract, to me, who is absolutely not a lawyer, it seems that Lou's kids didn't have a right to any piece of Apotex. But they, of course, saw things differently. And in 2002, according to a deposition given by Barry Sherman, Carrie Winter allegedly accused Barry of being involved in some conspiracy to murder their father and deprive them of their inheritance. Whoa. Carrie has denied making any such allegation. I remind you, Lou Winter died of an aneurysm. But okay. But also to deny them their inheritance, like he also had to pay a lot of money to get that company. Like there's some holes yeah. in that as even being a theory. Correct. In March 2006, Jeffrey, Carrie, Tim, and Dana's widow, Julia, all filed a $500 million claim against Royal Trust, 
the company that Lou Winter had put as the trustee of his estate. They blamed Royal Trust for failing to protect their interests by selling the company to Barry. Royal Trust claimed they acted properly, and the case was dismissed. So in January 2007, the Cousins, minus Jeffrey, filed a $1 billion lawsuit against Barry and his former business partners. Now, remember I mentioned over the years that Barry financed businesses for his cousins and bought them houses. Well, when they sued him, Barry got so upset, he decided it was time for the cousins to repay him for those loans. I don't know if everyone in the situation considered them loans at the time they were given. I think at the time, a lot of them thought he was giving them gifts, but he structured them like loans. It's also possible Barry never planned on having, asking them to pay back those loans. But he responded to the lawsuit by suing Kerry for outstanding loans totaling $8 million. In August 2007, the judge ruled in Barry's favor, and Kerry had to surrender his home, his vacation cottage, and two of his business properties. Barry then went to court to revoke the mortgages on the houses that he had previously purchased for his cousins. Uh, Barry said the only reason he went after the properties was because they were vacant and the property taxes hadn't been paid in years. Carrie said, well, the reason the taxes haven't been paid is because Barry didn't pay them. (laughs) But if he bought you a house, okay, anyhow. It was never publicly stated what the arrangement was about who pays what bills when Barry bought these houses. So I don't know really who's in the right here, but what I'm picking up is they pissed Barry off. So Barry was like, you want to play? Great. This is Which how it works. is absolutely his prerogative. Yes. Oh, yeah. 100%. The billion-dollar lawsuit over Apotex shares that the Cousins filed in January 2007 finally reached the Ontario Superior Court in September 2017. A judge declared the sale of Empire Labs nullified the option agreement and Apotex did not own or use any of the assets, goodwill, property, or business of the former company. The judge dismissed the case and called it, quote, wishful thinking and beyond fanciful. On December 6, 2017, just Seven days before Barry and Honey's murders, the judge ordered the Winter Cousins to pay $300,000 towards Barry's legal costs. Barry's lawyers appealed the amount, suggesting it should be closer to $985,000. Is it possible that one of or multiple of these cousins was angry about not only losing that billion dollars they believed they were owed, but then also had the extra slap in the face of owing Barry money? And is it possible that they were angry enough to kill him? Especially when Barry was trying to take back the money he'd once given them, the money that was structured like a loan, but it's possible the cousins just kind of thought it was a gift. And of the three living cousins, it seems that Carrie was the most public about his anger. For one thing, Carrie was the only person related to Barry who seemed to believe the initial murder-suicide theory. He even did an interview with CBC in which Carrie claimed that Barry 
had an utter disdain for his wife, to the point where twice in the 90s, Barry asked Carrie to kill Honey. Do we believe that? We do not. Yeah. According to some of Barry's friends, they claimed around 2011, Barry had told them he was considering leaving his wife. However, he didn't leave, and friends say the couple's marriage was stronger than ever at the time of their deaths. And if you thought claiming that Barry wanted Honey killed would be the most insane thing that Carrie would ever say, you'd be wrong. Just weeks after the murders, Carrie did an interview with the Fifth Estate, where he openly said he used to fantasize about Barry's death. That's not what you say out loud, bud. No, no. Uh, The exact quote from the interview, quote, He would come out of the parking lot of Apotex, and I'd be hiding behind a car, and I'd just decapitate him. I wanted to roll his head down the parking lot, and I'd just sit there and wait for the police. Now, despite this graphic and very public statement, Carrie has denied any involvement in Barry and Honey's murders. He said, quote, I have every reason to hate this man, but I have nothing to do with their demise. Police interviewed Carrie once. He claimed on the night of the murders he was meeting uh, at a meeting for a 12-step program. Witnesses corroborated him being there. My question is, how late did it go? Because they were allegedly killed between nine and midnight. Do those meetings go till midnight? I mean... Yeah. Great question. Just saying. But were there any other people close to Barry who would be considered suspects in this murder? Many people believe that one of Barry's business partners fits the bill. Barry had a lot of side investments, and many of those investments involved a man named Frank D'Angelo. In 2001, Frank owned D'Angelo Brands, which made apple juice. But then Frank had problems getting supplies, and he decided it would just be easier if he got his own processing plant. Someone told Frank that Barry Sherman owned a plant in Tiverton, Ontario, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that after a failed plan with a former business partner, Barry was planning to sell off parts of that plant. So Frank suggested that he would buy the plant from Barry for $5 million. But he didn't have the money. So Frank would then sell off the equipment and parts of the plant he didn't need to raise the $5 million that he would then give to Barry. Basically, Frank suggested he would buy the plant from Barry and pay Barry with money he got from selling the plant that he didn't even own. Basically, I'll buy it, but I'm going to sell your stuff to pay you for it. It's a terrible deal. It's horrible. But somehow, Barry Sherman was so charmed by Frank and his big ideas They agreed to go into business together and basically kind of became BFFs. Soon Frank suggested he and Barry use the plant to start making beer. 
oh, but before you can start making beer, you have to find the perfect beer recipe. And where are you going to find the perfect beer recipe? Ah, well, shit, Frank's got to go to Belgium. But at the time, Frank didn't have the money to hop a plane to Europe. So Barry paid off Frank's $50,000 credit card debt and then sent Frank to Belgium to find them that perfect beer. And what did he do? Well, Frank stopped at the first brewery he could find near the airport and went, that's the one. Perfect. Done. And soon Frank was manufacturing Steelback beer. Unfortunately, Steelback really struggled to find a solid customer base. People didn't like that it came in plastic bottles. They didn't like the screw cap lids. Uh, and they also did not like the lemon-infused flavor. Steelback sales revenue struggled to keep up with the events that Frank was sponsoring around the province. There were, like, various junior hockey leagues and the Grand Prix race in July 2007. Months later, Barry told Frank that his son Jonathan, a 25-year-old recent Columbia grad, was going to take over as the new CEO of Steelback Brewery. But by this point, Frank had filed for a bankruptcy protection, and he had a $120 million debt to 400 different creditors. And 101 million of that debt was owed to Barry Sherman. So of course Barry would bring in his son, because he's like, the company's going down, somebody needs to handle this, I've brought in my son. Frank was like, great call. I absolutely would have done the same. He steps down, he lets Jonathan run the show, and I guess as a thank you for taking it well, Barry then gave Frank a monthly allowance. I don't know how much that allowance was, but when you owe someone $100 million, you maybe shouldn't be getting an allowance from them, but what do I know? So, Jonathan then restructured the brewery. Uh, it kind of did okay, but then eventually it did close in 2010. Frank, however, operated a restaurant on King Street called Forget About It Supper Club. Of course. Barry, of course, was the club's financial backer. Okay. He also started producing an energy drink called Cheetah Power Surge. Uh, and it seemed that no matter what Frank wanted to do, Barry was just openly willing to back him on it. While most people around them did not seem to really understand that relationship, it seemed like Barry just respected Frank's ingenuity and strong work ethic. So even if Frank's ideas were shit, Barry still wanted to praise Frank for having the guts to even try these shit ideas in the first place. This led... <laughs> to Barry financially backing the Being Frank show, which was a variety show featuring celebrity interviews and comedy sketches that Frank made for a local TV station in 2010. Barry then paid for an executive produced seven films that Frank wrote, directed, and starred in between 2013 and 2018. These uh, mostly direct 
to DVD movies included The Neighborhood, Real Gangsters, The Big Fat Stone, No Deposit, The Red Maple Leaf, The Joke Thief, and Sicilian Vampire. Oh. And before you think that Frank was the only talent in these movies, they also feature people such as Danny Aiello, Mer- Mira Sorvino, Armand DeSante, Paul Sorvino, Chris Christopherson, Martin Landau, James Kahn, Eric Roberts, Margot Kidder, Doris Roberts, and straight from the Blanche list, Mr. Mark Blucas. And of those seven films, four of them also star Daniel Baldwin, which somehow makes complete sense to me. Yeah. (laughs) If you're going to get a Baldwin, I guess, Daniel. Uh, And while Barry was loving his involvement in these movies, his son Jonathan was not. In 2015, Jonathan sent Barry a series of emails to say he was disappointed that Barry continued to have a working relationship with Frank. In one of the emails, Jonathan mentioned having brought up these same concerns years prior, but that he had let it go because it strained their relationship. Jonathan claimed Frank was burning through Barry's money faster than it was coming in, but Barry defended Frank, saying that the movies had value in excess of cost. I remind you, one of them was called Sicilian Vampire. (laughs) Which I'd like to view. Oh, if you think I didn't consider watching all of these, uh, I did. I Close my eyes, throw a dart. I'm going to end up picking one that has a Baldwin in it. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan said that Barry was wasting his money, money that could be put to better use. You know, for just an example, maybe in Jonathan's own company. Barry told Jonathan that he gave Frank money because he believed in him. Which has got to be a low blow when (laughs) you say, hey, dad, you shouldn't give this guy money. You should give it to me. And he goes, I give it to him because I actually believe in him. Yeah, it's not that psychologist hat is a tough take. Um, And just like icing on the cake in the last email sent about it, uh, Barry sent Jonathan the trailer for Frank's latest movie. (laughs) Bold move, Barry. Uh, Jonathan and his sisters disliked Frank so much that they actually asked him not to attend the funeral. Wow. Technically, they asked somebody else to ask him because they didn't want him there. And I think it was mostly because Frank could do no wrong in Barry's eyes. And Barry kind of treated Frank like a son. Whereas his own children maybe got a slightly stricter response from Barry. After Honey and Barry's murders, the family started to suggest that Frank might be involved. Some claim Frank used to verbally abuse Barry. Others are like, they were like, best friends. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Police interviewed Frank. They were able to confirm his alibi for the days surrounding the murders. And honestly, with Barry dead, Frank lost his only financial backer. So I don't see I don't see why Frank would be so angry he would want Barry dead. Yeah. Unless Barry had finally decided to cut Frank off financially, 
but there were no signs of that. There was no sign of Barry trying to end their relationship in any way. So I just don't buy that Frank would want Barry dead. He certainly did not benefit from Barry's death in any way. But who would financially benefit from Barry's death? Honestly, his children. And no, I am not suggesting that any of Barry's children were involved in the death of their parents. I'm just saying in a murder investigation, police are going to look at everyone. And since Jonathan Sherman had some issues with his father, it made him the most suspicious of the Sherman siblings. Again, I'm not suggesting he was involved. I'm just saying he made himself look suspicious. So after that email chain with Barry about Jonathan's concerns over Frank, Jonathan sent an email to his sisters saying they needed to prove that Barry was no longer mentally competent to run the company. The sisters responded by forwarding the email to their father. Oh, wow. Who allegedly just laughed it off. But I find it interesting that Jonathan felt so threatened by Frank's relationship with Barry that he tried to have Barry removed from his own company. That feels to me like someone was jealous. Again, there were people who said Barry treated Frank like a son. So I bet Barry's only son would have some really strong feelings about that. And maybe Jonathan looks suspicious because he is the only child of Barry and Honey's to push back when it came to money. According to people who know the family, the kids often referred to Barry as the bank of dad. According to author Kevin Donovan, who, yes, I have referenced a lot in this episode, but that's because he's basically an expert on this case and spent years working it. Uh, Kevin said that when Lauren and Jonathan, who are the oldest two, uh, when they were younger, Barry gave them $100 million each and told them to invest it in real estate and businesses. Jonathan bought a $2 million property when he was just 23. Allegedly, Barry gave the younger two children $1 million each and told them to invest in stuff wisely. Couple of things. The idea that he'd give the oldest two children $100 million and the youngest two $1 million is wild to me. $1 million is a massive amount of money, more than I will certainly see in my lifetime. But the difference is just so huge, I feel like it was a very, very personal choice. Especially when people said that Barry often used to give money as his way of showing affection. So if that's true, it's very clear which kids were treated like favorites. And if that's true, I feel awful for the younger two because it is a shitty feeling when a parent is so obvious about preferring one child over another. I would feel sick if I gave two of my kids 20 bucks and didn't give the third one 20 bucks. I don't think I could sleep at night being like, here's a hundred million. Okay, you only get one million, but like, times are different. Figure it out. I just, you know, ah, uh, anyhow. But regardless as to how much money Barry may have given his children, Honey did not approve. 
Honey wanted their children to make their own way in the world. Uh, which brings me to the case of Honey and Barry's wills. In Canada, after a person's death, their will is usually available on a public database. In this case, the Toronto police had Barry Sherman's will locked down, claiming that it was linked to their investigation. Which means the police believed it's possible that Barry and Honey were killed either because of what was in the will or possibly because of what wasn't, or maybe who wasn't. Mm. Nine months before the murders, Barry changed his will. He originally had eight trustees or executors in his will, but in the spring of 2017, Barry changed it from eight to four. Craig Baxter, the original CEO of the family holdings company SureFam, who had since been replaced, was replaced in the will by the new CEO of SureFam. Makes sense. Two of the other executors were removed because Barry felt that the two men, who were in their late 70s at the time, were too old to possibly preside over his estate. The two men included Mike Florence and Alan Shetman, who happened to be Barry's brother-in-law's. One was married to his sister, one was married to his wife's sister. And while Barry said he was removing them due to their old age, Barry kept his BFF and longtime second-in-command at Apotex, Jack Key, as an executor, despite the fact that Jack was the same age as Barry's brother-in-law's. So then it makes you think, is there another reason why you removed your sister's husbands from the will it just feels suspicious you say oh i've removed them because they're old but you kept another old man on there yeah then it just feels like there's another reason but well uh, oh no there we go so from the best i can tell the original eight trustees were the ceo of surefam barry's two brother-in-laws Jack Key, and Barry's four children. But after Barry amended the will, the four remaining trustees were the new CEO of SureFam, Jack Key, Barry's son-in-law, Brad, and Barry's son, Jonathan. So yes, for reasons we'll never know, Barry removed his three daughters as trustees which just feels like a gross misogynistic move to me, especially when the only daughter that was married at the time, her husband was added instead of her. So she was removed, but he added the husband, which feels wild. Gross. Uh, also, Jonathan allegedly pushed Barry to put Jonathan's business partner, Adam Pollan, as a trustee. If he's not going to put his own daughters, why do you think he's going to choose your business partner? Why did you even suggest it? But again, Jonathan seemed to have an interest in telling Barry how his money should be dispersed. He already had voiced concerns over how much money was being sent to Frank D'Angelo. And when we're talking about a man 
who the financial press estimated was worth $4 billion. And insiders say, well, it's probably closer to $10 billion. I find it surprising that Jonathan would care how much money his father gave to Frank. But when you combine the fact that Jonathan was pushing to have his own business partner as an executor of the will, starts to look suspicious that maybe Jonathan was trying to get someone involved who might be willing to say a vote ever had to take place, be willing to vote whichever way Jonathan wanted them to. You know, allegedly. But something else I find interesting is that no will was ever found for Honey. A couple worth billions. Why wouldn't Honey have a will? A close friend of Honey's claims that a month before her death, Honey mentioned something about making amendments to her will. But since a will has never been found, people just seem to believe that, well, then Honey just never had one. But I am far too suspicious of everything to be considered most people. What if Honey did have a will? And what if in that will, Honey left everything to charity because she wanted her children to make their own way in the world without their father's money? And is it possible that Barry was killed for the money and because he left everything to Honey in his will, that she was killed and her will was destroyed so the money would just go to the Sherman children? Interesting. Because Barry's main beneficiary was Honey. But if Honey died before Barry, then Barry's full estate was to be split evenly amongst their four children. And money is a big motivator when it comes to murder, especially when we are talking billions. But I'm not saying that any of the Sherman children were involved. I'm just pointing out it's strange that a woman of Honey's financial status didn't have a will. I find it even stranger that Barry didn't arrange for any of his money to go to charity, even though the Shermans were known for being very philanthropic, it just feels off to me. And you know how I get when something feels off, I hyperfixate. And that's what I've been thinking about constantly for days is how did these people who give so much money to charity not leave any money to any charity in their wills? Again, billions of dollars. Fascinating. Uh, it is, of course, possible that the friend of Honey's was mistaken and Honey didn't actually have a will. My instinct was that someone worth that much money would absolutely have a will in place. However, I don't think the Shermans really thought too much about their financial status. Despite living in a nearly $7 million home, the Shermans didn't have big concerns about safety. They had an alarm system on the house, but they didn't always use it. And allegedly, Honey was known for just leaving the side door unlocked. There was no sign of forced entry at the house after the murders. Is it possible the killer had a key? Or did the killer simply walk through the side door that Honey left unlocked? My point is, if she didn't think that locking the door was necessary, it is more than possible that Honey didn't think that a will was necessary. Something else worth noting about Barry Sherman was while he was in and out of court over various patent lawsuits over the years, he didn't always win. 
In fact, just months prior to his murder, Barry lost a patent case to a big pharma company, which left Barry owing $580 million. Oof. Now, while Barry was worth billions, as I have mentioned previously on this show, especially in the uh, Maxwell episode, billionaires don't tend to have a lot of liquid funds. So when Barry got the massive bill to pay, he started going to people who he had previously loaned money to ask them to repay him ASAP. One of those people was Jonathan, who owed Barry about 50 or 60 million dollars. Okay. Through emails, Barry said he needed the money as soon as possible. Jonathan said he'd absolutely deal with that when he got home from his upcoming trip to Japan. Jonathan returned home less than a week before his parents were murdered. Thing is, on the day of Barry's murder, he sent a money transfer of over $17,000 to help pay for Jonathan's surrogacy journey. Which, to me, means Jonathan didn't have that kind of money at the time. So if he didn't have $17,000, how on earth did Barry expect Jonathan to repay fifty to $60 million? And, like, ASAP? I get Jonathan probably had money in investments and properties and whatever. It's just wild that someone could say, hey, I need you to give me $50 million. And the person says, of course, but I'm going to need 17000 And they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But the point is, uh, Barry was incredibly supportive of his son's surrogacy journey, and I find that incredibly lovely overall. Uh, and before I get off the topic of Jonathan and his father, we should briefly look at the relationship between the Shermans and their children. According to author Kevin Donovan, the relationship between Honey and her children uh, was strained, to say the least, likely due to Honey's feelings about the children and money. And Barry, well, I might not have known him personally, but I, but based on the memoir that he wrote during a family trip to Tanzania in 1996, I would say it's fair to describe Barry as maybe not the best with emotion. For example, um, in the memoir, when Barry spoke about the death of his father, he wrote, quote, I do not recall feeling any great sense of loss upon my father's death. And maybe it's true. Barry wasn't close with his father, or maybe his father's death caused Barry so much pain that he's blocked it out. I can't say for sure. But throughout the memoir, which was entitled A Legacy of Thoughts, Barry hardly mentions his family. Barry even knew that someone reading it would catch on to that. And he wrote, quote, the fact that I make little mention of my wife and children should not be taken as suggesting they are not important to my life, as that would be anything but true. However, it seems to me that information about my family is less is likely to be less interest to a reader than my observations relating to philosophy, Canadian politics, and the pharmaceutical industry. And look, you can take that however you want. Um... But just a few other statements 
uh, that Barry made in this memoir that stood out to me. Um, quote, free will is an illusion. Simple fact, quote, there is no God. And quote, life has no meaning. These three statements were listed as part of Barry's seven evident truths. On one hand, honestly, it sounds like a man suffering from depression. But on the other hand, it could simply be the writing of a man who's just not in touch with his emotions. It's possible. How in touch was he with his emotions with his children? Maybe, maybe it wasn't great. I don't know. None of us know. We weren't there. So, it's just something to consider if we think the kids might be somehow involved. We mm -hmm. don't. But I'm just saying. In May 2019, the North York Community Council approved a request from the Sherman children to have their parents' house at 50 Old Colony Road destroyed. I can understand that seeing the house would be too upsetting. They'd probably want to sell it, but then they knew... No one wants to buy a murder house, so the kids thought tearing the house down was the only option. I just find it surprising that they were willing to tear the house down before the investigation was closed. If a suspect had been caught and sentenced, great, understood. But to completely destroy the crime scene less than a year and a half after the crime, even without a conclusion, feels odd to me especially when the Sherman children actually submitted that demolition request in early February, just 13 months after the murders. And I know it's been long enough, the investigators likely wouldn't be able to get more clues from the house, and it was just a constant looming reminder to those kids that they're, of their parents' death. It was just a move I didn't see coming. I could understand if it was a financial decision, but those kids were left so much money that the house wouldn't have been a financial burden in any way. According to a representative for the family, the house contained, quote, bad memories and a stigma attached due to the incident that took place. But the thing I find really wild is that once the family was given permission to destroy the house, a crew went in with big machines and tore it all down, completely furnished. There were still personal effects inside, clothing, TVs, lamps, pictures hung up on the walls. I understand not wanting to step foot in that house again, but they had more than enough money to pay someone or some company to go in the house and take everything out. Don't want anything? Fine. Understandable. Donate it all. It's just wild to me to watch a house being torn down with the contents all still inside. And if someone listening to this is in construction and this is a common practice, please, by all means, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I, that is a fascinating question for sure. Because I just don't believe that it's a common thing. Well, look, and listen, we'll get into this in a minute, but the bottom line is, and I don't need to explain this to you, is that it looks suspicious when there's been a murder, right? So I'm not implying that they were involved, but it doesn't help perception. Yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't prove anything, but it's also just one of those things where it's like, that's the choice you wanted to make given what happened, given the timeline. Yeah, it, it stands out. 
like the fact that all of a sudden they went, you know what? Yeah, we just agree with the Toronto police. They're doing the best. And it's like, but the other investigation found stuff that they didn't. Okay. It was just weird. All of yeah. it, the whole time of it's, it yeah. was just very weird to me. But, oh my God, what did I do? There we go. So apparently, right before the house was going to be demolished, some random guy decided to sneak into the house. He took pictures. He recorded his entire time just wandering through this house. He shared them on Reddit. It has since been taken down. The person then showed the photos and the video he took. Um, he showed them to author Kevin Donovan, but only with the agreement that Kevin would not share them. So I have not seen the photos, but apparently there were multiple empty cans of beer and an open bag of chips on the island in the kitchen, which I find interesting. I know it's an odd thing for me to focus on, but hear me out. Let's assume that Honey and or Barry left the beer and chips on the counter. Was it usual for them to just leave an open bag of chips lying around? The housekeeper only came in once a week on Fridays. Did they plan on just leaving the chips and stuff there, thinking the housekeeper would deal with it days later? But if it was Barry and Honey that consumed it, well, that would have been possibly done Tuesday. Because they wouldn't have had time on Wednesday, because Wednesday... It's believed that Honey was attacked as soon as she arrived home at 8.30. Would they honestly leave multiple beer cans and an open bag of chips on the counter for a day or longer? I guess it's possible. I just don't buy it. It's also possible the beer and chips were left by some sort of random teens who broke into the house at some point after the murders. They wanted to have a party in like a murder house. I mean, that sounds like a teen thing. But... If the chips were there at the time of the murder, they would be in the police crime photos, which just manifesting into the universe, I'd like to see. Well, you would hope also that if it was there at the time of the deaths, that those cans would have been taken as evidence. They would have wanted to make sure that there was, if there was DNA on them, that it matched Barry and Honey and not someone else, because if it was someone else, I don't need to explain this to you. Correct. Um, so, I mean, we don't know if that was there at the time of the murder or not. No one has ever said. We've never seen the photos. Um, but I just want to know, did the housekeeper see them when she got there Friday? The finger, the cans should have been fingerprinted, tested for DNA or something. It's an odd thing to focus on, but... If the cans were at the house during the murder or after the murder, shortly after, you know what I mean, before the bodies were found, then that means it's possible the killer hung out at the house for hours after the murders, which is chilling to think about. But while this Redditor was going through the house, he said he found documents that to him looked like evidence That was just never collected. While he was at the house, he heard what sounded like someone opening the garage to enter the home. So he freaked out 
and got the heck out of Dodge. Um, I'm just saying I would like to see the photos and the footage. Are there going to be clues on it? Probably not, but I'm nosy and I ask nice. <laughs> I, guess I, I guess I didn't really ask nice, but please, I would love it. So <clears throat> the land at 50 Colony Ro- Old Colony Road was put up for sale after the demolition. The asking price was $6.5 million, which is interesting since the entire house was originally listed for 6.9. And yet, the land without the massive house was worth nearly as much on its own? I don't get it. Either way, the land finally sold in December 2020 for about 4.25 million. As of September 2023, the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman remain unsolved. Their son Jonathan has offered a reward of $35 million to anyone who can provide information that would lead to an arrest and a conviction. Is that an insane amount of money? Absolutely. Is such a high amount almost feel like someone is trying to not look guilty, but at the same time, it's offered because they know it will never be awarded? Allegedly, yeah. Again, I'm not accusing Jonathan of being involved in any way, but his sister Alexandra did. Whoa! She even went to the police and was like, I think my brother's involved. Wow! Yeah. So uh, she told them that Jonathan was, quote, power hungry. So take from that what you will. Reporting for this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. I have so many things to say. I have so many notes written down. Um, I am buzzing. Uh, Let's take one more drink. Hit the can, grab another drink, and we'll be back to wrap it up with our thoughts and theories on the Barry and Honey Sherman episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking about the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman. Um, Wow, wow, wow. So much to get through. So little time. So little time. Okay. I've just gone back to the beginning of my notes here. Let's take a look. Uh, This is fascinating, first and foremost. A fascinating case. Um, I did quickly Google something about the crime scene, and it does feel like it's hard to explain verbally, but the way that that railing they were attached to, it just doesn't feel 
to your point, when you see it visually, it doesn't yeah. feel like it's possible to, like your body just wouldn't let you. It, 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 it doesn't make any sense to me. Like you would have to physically be kind of pulling yourself away and yep. your, our bodies tend to like, even if you have the like sheer will, as you're kind of passing out, your body isn't going to continue to try and kill you, right? Like it's, our yeah. bodies try to survive. So it just doesn't, I mean, I know that we don't need to debate whether it was a murder-suicide because we know, but it's just interesting to me because you know the one thing that I rage about on this show more than anything is I want every case treated as a homicide. Even if you think yep. it's a, a suicide, I want you to treat it like a homicide because this is a perfect example where it's like, I don't know how viewing that they would go, oh yeah, murder-suicide. Like it just feels so implausible based on the yep. way that this scene was set. Um, Absolutely. But again, my personal want is uh, that even if it did look like a murder-suicide, that we at least investigate it Give it the the due diligence, et cetera. Um, you're going to love it. The abrasions on their wrists were caused from zip ties or zap straps. What the hell's a zap strap? Um, it was put to me as though that's like, it's basically a zip tie, but that's like the name they call it. It's a similar style. But it was put to me like, oh, everybody calls it a zap strap. I'm like, I've never fucking heard of zap strap in my life. I've never heard zap strap. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because zip ties come up. But then these other things called zap strap. Well, this is called zap strap. This is listed under first aid. It's like a fracture strap. Oh. Well, that looks... This looks very specific. It's like something you would use to like bind. It's it's not it. Like it's six inches by 20 inches. Then why and we, would they even suggest that it was the same? I don't know. Maybe that are, wouldn't leave marks on your arms like a zip tie would. Right. There's another thing saying that a zap trap is, strap, excuse me, is a zip tie. But there is a product specifically called Zap Straps that is not a zip tie. So it's very confusing is the point. Um, that checks out. Yeah. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, so right away, I was getting into what is the motive in this crime, right? And, and not to belabor the suicide thing, murder-suicide, because we know it wasn't. But I was like, what would the murder be? And then hearing this detail come out from... Carry the cousin about like oh he asked him to kill honey i don't i don't buy that um no and then also if that was true to me that wouldn't prove murder suicide at all he was he this was a man of extreme wealth like and if if he was a man of extreme wealth who had already had a conversation about trying to hire a killer i don't know why he would then take it into his own hands and take his own life it just doesn't add up to me a hundred percent. And as somebody pointed out, um, a man that could have so many medications at his disposal. Yeah, why, great point. If, if he was going to kill her, why would he go to all this effort? Why wouldn't he just stick a certain combination of pills in a drink or some food and just call it a day? Like the way it was done, it was like, well, no, that's not. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so I said, 
Honey got home that night, the night of the murder, around 8.30 p.m.-ish, and then I said, is there alarm system records? Now, I know that you've said that they didn't always use them, which is extremely inconvenient, but I'm curious if there was, because on my alarm system, for example, there's an entire daily running, constant running ticker of, like, everything that happens on the system. That has to exist for them. Now, granted, I understand that that doesn't answer any questions necessarily, But what it could do if it was potentially used and this was accessible information is at least show if the killer was indeed waiting in the house before they got home that the killer did know the code because, right, there's also a difference between that and perhaps the killer being someone the person knew and coming through the front door. I mean, I would assume this is in the, the this is 2017. I would assume there would be some level of cameras at least like a ring doorbell. Like, I feel like those are pretty common. Like, sure. was there no kind of, but I know that people were using the side door and she uses the side door. So again, I would just be curious in general about whether there's alarm system records. Um, yeah. Not nothing that those, that w- I nothing that ever came up. Yeah. Well, and also not that they would have been, lo- that could be another thing where police go, didn't think of it. Um, oh. The timing is really very interesting. The fact that this was Wednesday before they're set to fly on the Monday, Honey's assistant was away that week. The fact that Jonathan was also away and had come back less than a week before this happened. A um, lot of very interesting timing there. Um, I love and that Honey had just gotten back from a trip too, like right. just days prior. She was she just came back from somewhere with girlfriends or something. It just doesn't feel I think that we can say now, granted, I am speculating, obviously, but I think it's safe to say this is not a random crime. I feel like you can re- rule that out. Is it possible it was a hit? Sure, that's in the grand scheme of anything being possible. But this has to have been someone that has knowledge of what they are doing, where they are going, how their house works, what their schedule is. Like, I just I just don't buy that it was a random crime. I also don't buy that if it was a random crime. Again, there was no signs of robbery, no signs of forced entry. And then we're talking about a serial killer potentially for posing the bodies and whatnot. You know what I'm saying? Like, to me, it just feels it has to have been someone that knew them. Uh, I wrote down in all caps once again, treat every case like a homicide. Um, Because it just makes me so crazy. The fact that the police were preoccupied with the Bruce MacArthur case. Hilarious. I love that I was thinking of Bruce MacArthur and said Harbor. Couldn't think of his last name. That's on me. Um, you brought up that the house had a dumbwaiter. Shout out to my favorite play of all time, The Dumbwaiter, written by Harold Pinter. There you go. There's the six months or four months I spent in theater school left something with me. Anyway, um, the fact that this man on the video footage from the neighbor had a unique gait, the fact that they didn't release it is such a shame to me. I know that then you get a lot of tips that don't go anywhere, but you just never know whether there is something to that that you could find um the tower dump it's interesting to me that it had that there was so much information for them to go through i understand that that could take a very very long time but if you had a very specific window i just can't believe that it would take three to four years to go through all that information maybe i am really underestimating just how large it is but to me it's like why don't you just do a 20 minute span or something around that time that he was seen. You know what I'm saying? Like, narrow it down, and if you find nothing, then you could go out. I don't know. I don't know how they do their jobs, and it's not my place to say, but it just felt like a really long time for that to take. Um, 
The fact that the family stopped the independent investigation and backed the police is interesting. Again, of all the things we just have to note, it's like, that's an interesting detail. The details of this, this situation with his cousins is fascinating to me. The fact that he was financially supporting them, the fact that he was going out of his way, the fact that he had, we know that he had given them at least $15 million. And then even after all that, they were like, let's find a way to get more money. Now, granted, I understand that these four kids were orphaned at a young age. They didn't have an easy childhood, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's just a little sad to me. I feel like, you know, you always hear stories about people who win the lottery, et cetera. And then all of a sudden people come up, come and like demand money from you. And it just felt sad to me because he had been giving them homes and businesses and money and all of the above. Like yeah. it wasn't like he was being a total Scrooge, you know, like he was yeah. actively helping them. And then it was like, they wanted more and more. Um, and what it felt like to me, because you were saying it was like, there was some gray area. Like he had kind of written these things up like loans, even though they were essentially or, or seemingly gifts. I think he must have done that to save, like to protect himself. This guy was incredibly oh, yeah. intelligent. We know that from yes. all of his, his his history. So to me, if he was writing up some sort of documents that were making these look like legit loans, that's because he's no dummy. And he knows that this could happen. And then he's going to have to call on them, which he did, which to be honest, again, his prerogative, man, like, yeah, it's just sad to me that these people were obviously hurting, I think, so deeply that that's how they felt like they needed to try and act, was trying to take him for even more. Um, again, it's it's tragic all around. Uh, of course, they, yes, protecting himself. Yes, I wrote that down. Um, Carrie's alibi being at the 12-step meeting is another one that's interesting. I, I also, as you know, I'm always curious, too, about, like, do people partner up? Is this potentially that there was more than one person involved? Well, you know, you never sure. know. You never know. Um, but I will say that going on a news show and in depth describing how he would have killed Barry and how he used to fantasize about him does yeah. feel uh, unhinged at at best and like a uh, psychologist hat. I need to make a formal assessment at worst. Um, yeah. Feels very like narcissist behavior thinking you can be smarter than the above the law, et cetera. I'm not suggesting he killed him. I'm just saying it is a very bold thing, especially when there's an active murder investigation going on to publicly go on and talk about how you physically wanted to murder him. Um. I agree with you that Frank doesn't feel like he has a solid motive. Um, yes, it absolutely. If we're going black and white, the kids do have the most solid motive of all. Uh, it's very interesting to me that he changed his will in the spring before the death and changed the executors and all of the above. What I wonder is the friend who is talking about Honey when Honey was saying, oh, I need to make some amendments to my will, yeah. I wonder if that's what she was talking about. If she was like, oh, we just have a joint will, and she was speaking about it colloquially, where it's like, oh, well, yes, I need to make some adjustments to my will or some amendments. But sure. what she actually meant was that they were doing it to their will, that it was a joint will, which, by the way, I'm not saying you can have a joint will or that that's even a thing. I have no idea. But I'm sure. just curious if it was 
actually in reference to what Barry was doing with the will that she potentially knew about. There's also the possibility that her will has just been somehow lost, but you have to, in order for a will to be binding, it has to be like notarized, right? You have to do it with a lawyer or do it with with a... So to me, it feels like if she had one, there would be a record of it somewhere. You would think so. I don't know what the, like, if a lawyer has created a will for someone, if they have died, legally, can they say like, hey, cops, I have that person's will? I think they have to. Like, you would think so? Because otherwise it's like, then just nothing? Like, or even just, hey, I did do a will for them. Well, I don't know where it goes under like, client lawyer privilege i don't know sure but i would say the one thing we both know is if the police had a had a um oh why can't i think of the word the the police had a you go to the judge to get it to enter someone's home what the fuck is it warrant thank you very much if the police had a warrant (laughs) then they could absolutely compel that information from a lawyer Right? You would think so. I'm pretty sure you can get, even if you couldn't necessarily get the details, you could absolutely find out if it existed. Um, it's very interesting to me that Jonathan also was pushing for his business partner to be added. That feels so bizarre, especially considering we also knew that he had contacted his sisters saying, we have to make it so it seem that dad is not mentally fit to, to run a company. And the sisters were like, no, like... Oh, yeah. and that email, um, the subject was shareholders because he considered the four siblings to be the shareholders of that company. Well, that's creepy. Hmm. Um, there's also It's also interesting that if that Barry's beneficiary was Honey, but if Honey died first, the estate would be split four ways between the kids. Like, I don't know. It's very creepy. Very, very creepy. Um, the fact that he had lost that patent case, asked for the money back from Jonathan. Jonathan said, sure. And then once I get back, and then once he got back within a week, the, both of them turn up dead again, we're, we're not saying anything. We're speculating here, but when we're looking at the bigger picture, yeah, there's a lot going on there. A lot of energy there. A lot of energy there. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, and ultimately it doesn't matter, but in in talking about how Barry didn't seem like he was great with emotions, I wonder if he was neurodivergent. It felt like it's possible, given his extreme talents in maths and sciences, the fact that it seemed as though he was not necessarily emotional, um, the fact that he had written his memoir and was very matter of fact that he said, it may seem odd that I'm not talking about my family, but I feel like these other things would be more of interest. These all felt like very kind of like even his kind of um, the way that he would like speak about his beliefs, right? Like free will is an illusion, like these kinds of just very matter of fact ways of speaking. Yeah. I just, that's just what struck me at the time felt um, not that ultimately it matters, but I do think that if we're building a picture of, you know, or trying to understand the bigger picture of what their life was, there is a difference to me in in between, you know, someone who, like, truly didn't care about his family or someone whose brain potentially just operated differently. Um, 
and it could have been interpreted in various ways from those children, but it just struck me at the time, given the full sp- the full kind of like making the full picture. It was just like an interesting thought I, that had struck me. Um, them destroying the house. They put in the re- request 13 months after the murder. I just wrote down, this just feels like all the times in cases where a loved one has the body cremated before the investigation is over. And every single time we say that doesn't prove anything, but it feels really off. This yeah. feels like it's in that exact same world because you're cutting off sure. the ability for there to be anything else ever. Yeah. And yeah, I would love to know. Yeah, dear listeners, do you do this kind of work? Do place do places? Because also, this wasn't a ban- an abandoned, dilapidated. Maybe there was Correct. junk in there. This was a beautiful, well-appointed, high art piece filled home, and for yeah. it all to be there, for there to be, or or for most of it to be there. I mean, that's really. It either speaks to a true detachment from any sort of nostalgia about that house or it talks to hiding evidence or a combination of both. But it it just feels again like, wow, I don't know. Because even if we're thinking through through the lens of greed, right, if we're thinking about like more money, the better, all of the above, like they could have certainly, I'm sure, had a company go in. There's always these estate sales and estate auctions, right? Where you can sell off everything and make a chunk. And I'm sure they had like, well, they had those art pieces we know about. I'm sure they probably had more. I'm sure they had decent furniture, even if Honey was frugal uh, in their clothing and and whatnot. I'm sure there was still enough in there that it would have been worth their while to try and auction it rather than just be like, oh, trash it all. Yeah. Again, just have some, if you don't want to enter the house, yeah, that's one thing. They could have easily had people go in, yeah, take everything out of the house, transfer it to like a warehouse somewhere, and here's all the stuff. Each of you go through, pick and choose if you want anything. And even if they didn't, even if if they were like, yeah, but even, yeah, even if they were like, we never want to see anything from that house again. There are services that exist that will take it all out. They will sell it all for you. Whatever doesn't get sold, they will take and donate. Like, you can pay people to do this. And again, we're talking about people that we know absolutely have the means. Um, Oh, it's so fascinating. Now, this whole situation about the cans of beer and chips on the kitchen counter, the only other thing that I wrote down, because as I said, I, I would hope that if there was open cans of beer on the counter... When the bodies were found, I would really hope that the police would bag those as evidence and test them. Yep. If they didn't, that that almost makes me lose faith in all of humanity. Like, it just feels like that's so simple. So my yep. question is, and I agree with you, the real person to ask is the housekeeper. Did the housekeeper see them, remember seeing them when she went in? But you brought up, did this mean that the killer potentially could have hung out at the house for hours after the murders. Here's what I said. Something that we know, not 100% of the time, but killers will return to crime scenes. That is not abnormal. Sure. So is it also possible that, especially if this was someone that knew the family in some regard, knew how to get in and out of that house relatively unnoticed, 
Sure. Could have happened at any point. Yeah. I think that there, again, it's just, because then I start to write a story, right? Sure. Where it's like, someone went in, these cans have been left, could that have potentially motivated, if there is a connection, I'm not saying there is a connection to the family, but if, in the grand scheme of anything being possible, there was, is it possible that someone went in, was eating and drinking in the house. The others were like, what are you doing? This is going to make you look guilty, even if they were innocent, and said, we got to trash that house. I mean, there's also that. It, it feels like it could be connected to being a motivator. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. Um, and the only other thing I will add is, of course, that the sister did accuse Jonathan saying, going to the police saying he was power hungry, saying she thinks he has something to do with it. I mean, these are bold kind of words yeah now do we know anything about jonathan's alibi at the time of the crime i know that uh uh i think it was mentioned in the documentary that he had told police he was having like a dinner i don't know if it was like at a home or a restaurant or whatever uh with friends and then they looked into it and came back and went uh actually that dinner was thursday night not wednesday night and then he was like, oh, but I was way at home and that's super far. I couldn't have got there. And it's like, it was like an hour away, maybe two hours away. And, and we know that there was between nine and midnight. I mean, we're not suggesting anything. No, but we present the information. Um, and that's public information. So there you go. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Again, I've said it more times than I can count on this show. The simplest explanation is often the truth. And statistically speaking, an absolute stranger murder, they are, they happen, of course. We talk about it on the show all the time, but they are rare. And quite often, you know, when there are murders done, it's often someone that's absolutely uh, knows the victims. Did you have any other uh, thoughts or feelings or anything else you wanted to share uh, on the on the subject? Um. Oh God. Um. I don't think so. I'm just. Ah. Uh, I know I'm not a professional. But if you could have just, I mean, ideally, after the bodies were out, if you could have just let me go through that house. Yeah. Like right away. Yeah. So I could have figured everything out. So I could have figured everything out. <laughs> yeah, you would have <laughs> asked. I just, I just, I just have so many questions. I just want to know, were the chips on the counter <laughs> when people arrived? Did they, uh, like, if Honey's phone was found in that bathroom that people were like, she never used it. It's weird that it would have been in there. Did, did they? check for fingerprints in and around that bathroom door because if she went to that bathroom to try and go lock herself in and call did someone obviously then got in the bathroom or she didn't fully close the door or something they would have touched that door in some way isn't it also possible didn't you say that bathroom was by the front door of the house yes isn't it also possible that she was running to the front door to escape sure there's a there's a struggle 
Her yeah. phone gets dropped and slides along the floor into that bathroom. That's also possible too, right? That's true. Because uh, that's the other thing. I'm fascinated by, it's like, oh, well, she she got home probably around 830. It's like, how do we know that? I want to see these, I want to see the alarm. I want I want to know. Even if the answer is yeah. the alarms hadn't been set all day, great, then I can cross it off. But that will haunt me because to me, yeah. that's a huge clue. If at some point you see that the alarm was disarmed at whatever time, five o'clock when they were both not in the home and the housekeeper yeah. wasn't there, the gardener wasn't there, no one else was there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm also. Are we going like, are we? Taking it from their cell phone positioning as to where they were, like, it was about 8.30 when her cell phone said she was home. Like, is that where we're getting the 8.30? Or it's just the assumption she left this shopping, the assumption is she went immediately home. What if she didn't? Oh, great point. What if she went somewhere? What if Barry got home first? I did write down at some point in my notes and I didn't get into it, but I was like, why are we assuming the order of the murders? Yeah. There's no reason to assume that. No, it just, I, I just want to be, I want to see and read the files always, but I want to see like where it took to get there. Why yeah. do we believe that was the specific time frame? How do we know that they didn't arrive home at the same time? And maybe one of them brought someone home with them. Yep. Maybe they were like, hey, I was out shopping. Look who I ran into. Said, hey, come on over. We'll have drinks. And, and that's when I also asked, well, because this this is a great question. Because to me, I understand the concept that perhaps they were not both there at the same time if it was a solitary killer. Because a solitary killer who's not killing with like a gun, it does feel more difficult sure. to try and restrain two people at the same time. However, yes. to your point, who knows how many people could have been in that house? Yep. She could have had three people in the house. We don't know, right? So again, it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, to your point, one of them could have brought someone home. He could have got home before her. Could have been more than one person in the house. I tend to believe that these things are very difficult to pull off alone. Oh, yeah. Especially when you're moving bodies, especially when you're, you know, cleaning up your tracks well enough that you still haven't been caught. I don't know. Like, part of me is curious about whether or not this was a this was a dual thing. But it definitely feels to me like there was the altercation near the front door and her phone fell out of her hand. It feels like there's an alter altercation by the door into the from the garage with the, the gloves and the papers. It does feel yeah. like those two things happened. I can buy that. Um, however, I will also offer when we're looking at a crime scene that may have been staged. I don't know what the killer would gain by staging those two details. I can't think of a reason to do it, especially sure. when you're trying to make it look like a murder suicide. To me, if I'm not going to say if I was a killer because I never would be, but sure. putting yourself in the, that mindset, one would think that those things would have been cleaned up. 
because especially if you want it to look like a suicide this is what i'm saying so again it's like why would you ever have left those things there it doesn't appear that the person was in a rush yeah especially if you're going to the trouble of crossing people's legs and sitting them up and all of the above right especially if you're having to go around the house to find another belt, et cetera, to your point. No matter where the belt yeah. was left, it probably wasn't laying right there in the pool room, True. right? So 100%. there would have to have been yeah. – so if you're walking around and you're going to the trouble of trying to stage a crime scene, why wouldn't you do another sweep? It's like when I'm leaving a hotel, I always call it the idiot sweep. Like you go through, you look sure. under the bed, you make sure it's like, did I leave anything anywhere? Like you do that. Of course. Yeah, so well, again, I'm fascinated by it. Then it makes me go, it makes me wonder, and this is a wild speculation, but I was like, the, first, the thing that kept coming to mind was like, did they think that that was going to make it look like there was an altercation between the two of them? Like, were those things also potentially staged was my other question. In, in some whatever, and then is the killer like having to sit in silence right now going like, you don't get it. <laughs> like You just don't get oh, what I was yeah. trying to do to go for. I don't know. Like it just, again, like yeah. those details just feel so odd. It feels very odd to miss it if you're staging yeah. a crime scene. And then it feels even odder to plant it that way because again, it doesn't make any sense. But I don't know. This These are again the, the things that are confounding. Yeah. Oh, I will never... I mean, I will. I didn't think of it until you had said it to me, and you'll love that I don't recall if you, if you said it to me uh, while we were recording or uh, on one of our breaks. But um, your comment, we were talking about how to hang from a three-foot pole is not enough leverage to actually, not to be crass, but to do, to do the job. It's just not going to happen. But to your point, if the bodies had been turned the other way and hung into the pool, even though I don't know how deep it was because it was a lap pool. So I don't think it was crazy deep, but that would have been more. So it's like, so why didn't you just turn the, put them in the pool hanging that way? That looks more, I mean, that's also like, that's interesting. Uh, but that looks more likely murder suicide than the way they were sitting the way they were sitting feels like that person's sick and is like i have this is going to be fun i want to set them up well it definitely seems like a message which is why again then i just go to the mindset of then nothing is an accident and everything is deliberate so why is the phone there why are the driving gloves there if someone's being that meticulous which Serial killers, we know it's a, obviously a spectrum, but qu can be quite meticulous. Sure. And I'm not saying this was a serial killer. I'm merely comparing that it's like if we, we compare it to those kinds of cases, it's just odd to me. Again, the, all of the details of it are odd. Yes, because if they were trying to hang themselves in that way and then they jumped into the pool, so they put it yeah. around their neck and they tied it to the thing and then they jumped into the pool. If you had proper upper body strength, could you have pulled yourself out? Yes. Is the angle weird? Yes. Do I buy that you could die in that way? Yes. But then, yeah, then the bodies would be in the water. Like, yep. And even then, why, if it was a murder-suicide, why would he hang her? 
Yeah. He was so what he hung her, hanged her, posed her, and then said, My turn to go, and I'm gonna cross my legs and sit like like it just doesn't add up. Oh, it does. And I think the only reason we're still talking about it, because it's so clearly a homicide, is that it just feels like we've been gaslit by the police that it's like, oh, it was yeah. a murder suicide. And it's like there's so much manpower or excuse me, brain power being wasted going like, but wait a second, that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Because if we know it was them, or excuse me, if we know it was a homicide and we know that there were these creepy statues posed in the same way in the house. Yeah. And we know that the the kids had a certain opinion about those statues or whatever. That feels like a first step to me. That feels on the first pass. If I'm, if I'm a, if I'm detectiving, I'd go, maybe there's something with that. Yeah. Oh, I'm not so convinced how much they even looked at the house. I understand that it was a massive house, 12,000 square feet. That's going to be a lot. But, come on. You walked in there and went, ah, well, obviously one of them took their own life. Yeah. Really? It just, I, I, I don't get it. I also don't get how that secondary private investigation was like, we found 25 fingerprints that the police didn't find. And it's like, did did you give that to the police then when your investigation was ended? Or did you say, fuck you to the police, do your own investigation? And that's why they're like, if you sent them any tips, send them to us. Like, it's just in the end, did that second investigation not go, okay, here's everything we had and let the police go through it. It's very odd to me. Yeah. Especially if the the independent investigation was retired police officers, which I believe you said it was, or there was retired police officers involved, then they would know protocol and they would, you would, one would think there would be a vested interest in, like they take an oath, right? Yeah. To uh, obey and protect or whatever it is, to serve and protect. Oh, yeah. So it just, and I look, look, I know that those things can get broken too, but I just feel like. Yeah, it's very odd to me, to your point, that it's like, well, what were those fingerprints? Did they get passed along? Was that a part of the investigation? And then once they learned that, because the house was still there at the time, did they, you know, go back, look through it again? And I, I, would, I would like to know where were these fingerprints that they found? Yeah. Where is it that they missed? Yeah. Well, just, uh, f- here's the first place I'd look. The railing yeah. that the belts were hanging from. Yep. That'd probably be yeah. number one. And I know that you you could be listening and going like, oh, clearly the police checked there, but I, did they? Well, that's the thing. If they looked at it and went, oh, clearly murder-suicide. Well, but, you know, it is interesting. And, and of course, the details of the Bruce MacArthur case leave me because we've that was so long ago. But it is very interesting for context to think about because I raged out about that in that case multiple times in my research. It is interesting to think about this in terms of being a snapshot in time, right? That it's like during that time, that case was completely bungled. We know that. We know that if they had been used power case then his potential 
um, that lives would have been saved. Not all of those men would have been killed. Correct. So it's just interesting to then then go, was this a systemic issue at the time? Was it really and that's not to say that it wasn't before and it isn't still. I don't know. But it's just interesting that they were so close together and that both sure. feel like they were so mishandled. Yeah. Oh, it I it was bungled from the start. Yeah. And whether they just said that night at the first press conference that it was murder-suicide because they didn't want to get into it or freak people out that it was a double homicide. It's like, well, you chose the wrong call. Yeah. Because they also didn't investigate it like a homicide if that's what they thought it was. Yeah. Mm. Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, fantastic research and work as always. What a truly confounding one. I can see now, dear listeners, why so many of you were begging us to cover this case because it really is one that is going to stick with me for some time. Just, just so, so confounding. As always. But we thank you for your research and your work. As always, 12 out of 10, out of the park. You are incredibly kind, as always. I speak the truth. And we thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this journey. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter, at Not Detectives. And, of course, if you'd like some more of this chucklehead content, go over to patreon.com slash Cocktails where we offer a subscription-based service over there. Um, there's all kinds of fun things happening, polls, uh, bonus episodes, live Q&As. you got to check it out if you're interested, um, and we'll see you there. And, of course, the only place for official True Creme and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you haven't already. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Herb Bowmeister. Now, this, of course, was our August, I believe, patrons poll. Um, chose the, Again, there, there is a monthly poll over there where you can choose one of the cases that we cover per month over here on the main feed of the show. So, again, check that out if you're interested. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Uh, as a fun throwback from earlier, uh, goodnight, Gabrielle Union. Oh, goodnight, cheese whiz. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.